by naming God, you're already missing the point, right? Because once you try to say that God is this or that, or God wants this or that, you negate the fact that God is omni, which is all and everything, right? God is that for which there is no other, right? In the Tao Te Ching, they say that the Tao is older than God, meaning that the idea of God that somebody had to say and point to something, what came after the source that produced all of that, right? You are listening to The Medicine Podcast. I am Mimi. What is up, everybody? This is Chase. So, long story short, we were childhood sweethearts turned husband and wife in our early 20s. Despite following the mainstream script for happiness, we actually divorced for three years. Only to later reunite as soulmates with a brand new outlook on love, God, health, and the real medicines of the universe. If you find yourself wondering, is there more to this life, to health, to God, to love? Then you are in the exact right place. Consider this your bridge to expansion for body, mind, and relationships. We are uncovering and discovering with you. Let's go take the medicine. Hello, hello, audio fam. This is episode 136 of The Medicine Podcast. We are so glad that you are joining us today. If this is your first time listening, you picked a powerful one, my friend. Chase and I are joined in conversation with the one and only Jason Picard. We met Jason a few months back at a dream interpretation workshop, and after just a few short minutes of conversation, we knew we needed to bring him on and introduce you all to his unique and transcendent wisdom. Jason has one of the most interesting lives we've ever heard of. Early on in his Wall Street career, he was named as one of the top 30 traders under 30 worldwide. With more money and success than most people could even dream of, he still found himself quite unhappy, unhealthy, and unfulfilled in his relationships. You'll hear all of the details of his story, but through his process of transformation over many years, he is now an intuitive life process coach. Jason believes that the more access we have to our wholeness, the more fulfilled and successful we become on all levels. His breadth of knowledge and firsthand experience reaches across so many different cultures, practices, and mythologies. It is completely mind-blowing. So, under Jason's guidance, clients learn to stock the meaningful events in their personal history to recognize how even their most painful moments ultimately serve their life trajectory. Once that value is recognized, the spell of negative conditioning and reactive behavior is largely broken. Jason assists his clients to rediscover and actualize their latent potential for extraordinary levels of reinvention, self-expression, and transcendent contribution at this make or break moment in the history of our humanity. This episode is jam-packed with rich stories, contemplations on God and divinity, and all sorts of insights that left our jaws on the floor. Jason knows firsthand that each of us carries within us neglected seeds of our own greatness. And as an intuitive life process coach, he assists his clients, and now us, to enter the realm of the mystic and the mythic, 
by becoming trackers of our process and discovering the inner gold that awaits discovery and development. I think you guys will love Jason just as much as we do. And as always, we appreciate if you share the episode, either on your Instagram story or directly with someone you love. These types of conversations help us all usher in a more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. So thank you for listening and sharing. We love you and we mean it. All right, let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. Welcome back to The Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi and I have my love, my king, my blue-eyed warrior with me here. (laughs) What is going on, everybody? Super excited today. We got to meet Jason, I don't know, a month, six weeks ago or so. And I, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt or, or uh, vaporizer, uh, yeah. if you will, uh, vaporizer air. But ever since we met, man, I've been hanging on every word that you've had to say to us, to other spaces that I've you know, listened to you speak on. And like, I'm really, really excited to get into all of this goodness today and hopefully much more in the future. Um, but welcome to the Medicine Podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Oh, it's so good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's such a great, warm welcome. And you know, I feel the same way. Ever since I met you two, I've really been just thinking about your energy and thinking about your story. And uh, it's all just been so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we just we we met Jason up at uh, a Paul Check workshop, a, the Dream Interpretation, which is so fitting for what you do in the world. And obviously, we're excited to share with our listeners what that is exactly. But um, we just like had an instant connection with you. Like so many others, we meet up at, at Paul Check workshops because there's so many alignments. You know, if, if you're at Paul check workshops, you are invested in self-development. You probably have some wild life story and you are open to keep learning in this life. And, and it was, so it was an instant, easy connection with you. And, and uh, yeah, we've just been loving what you have to say and, and the prep work for this, this podcast and what we want to share with our listeners, because there's so many directions we can go with someone like you, because you have so much knowledge in all different types of different aspects and areas. And so it was really fun getting to plan with you. Like what, what do we want to gift to our listeners? What wisdom from you? And, and I think we came up with something really unique and uh, yeah, we're excited to, to jump into it. But first, before we get to all of that, the first question that we ask every guest on the medicine is what do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to every human? Great question. Great question. So I was thinking about this because, you know, you sent these questions over um, before and I was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe my children or maybe this hobby or this or that. But when I really sat and meditated, meditated on it, I thought about what I learned as a term called meta skills. Mm. And this was from Amy Mandel, one of the founders of process work in which I'm a self-guided diplomat um, student of. And meta skills are the deep feeling attitudes that reflect our beliefs about life. So it's in the way we do anything, right? Maybe we were talking about, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. I mean, that's a meta skill. So skills are the techniques we use. They're the things in our toolbox, but the way we use those tools are our meta skills. Mm. 
you know, I was getting my haircut earlier today and I was thinking about the guy giving me the haircut. And I was thinking that, okay, his scissors are his tools. But he could either say, he could either open up a notebook and say, hey, do you want the one, two or three or four buzz cut? And just go off of that. Or he could really feel into me, like what is really gonna make me look the best and, and feel the best. And so his ability to do that are his meta skills. And so these are in effect in our relationships in the general atmosphere that we project for ourselves and others. Mm. And Native Americans call these the good attitudes. So again, it's, it's just a way we approach life. It's a way we approach anything. So what I would gift to every human would be, first of all, to discover what are your meta skills, because there's not one that's necessarily better than the next, but it's understanding what is your style? What is your approach to life? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's this understanding of the wisdom and the way of nature you know, the purposeful laws of nature that are present everywhere. It's a curiosity for learning. I have this insatiable thirst for knowledge. It's seeing everyone as a Sanskrit word, Atma, which means for us, it means the soul, but it's really a much more descript term, but seeing the Atma in all people, mm. right? Having, having awe for the great mystery of life, you know, bringing playfulness and humor into our relationships, into our work, into the world, um, detachment, I would say. And this last one is kind of fun. This is um, one that comes out of the Carlos Castaneda books uh, about Don Juan. It's this idea of being a hunter warrior. And what that means is hunting, tracking, and stalking yourself. Mm. And your own your, your own process and really hunting down to, you know, really understanding your life and the interactions and the way you're behaving and becoming a student of yourself through deep awareness. Mm. So I know that was a lot, but, you know, if anyone can take anything away from that, I would just say discover your own meta skill, your own feeling attitude about how you approach anything you do. Mm, that oh, is so God. rich. <laughs> that is so good. There, there's so many pieces there that I, that I would love to, to, to pull on. What's standing out, though, about that last piece is the warrior hunter um, mentality, yeah. archetype, if you will. I think we talk about it often archetypes and especially like these masculine archetypes. Um, you know, one of them is the, is the warrior. And I think oftentimes we assume that that's an external um, energy, that it's an acquisition energy. It's a penetrating energy. It's a competitive winning energy domination, domination that's external. And there certainly is an element to that, you know, masculinity is very purpose-driven achievement driven, but like thinking back on the competition within yourself mm -hmm. on the, um, the hunting and the stalking of, you know, your own learning and self-development, I don't think is necessarily thought of enough. And so I love that you brought that back to you know, inwardness, mm -hmm. because that's like, so critically important with that warrior archetype. Yeah. And, and something I just thought of uh, um, in, in the same vein is that it's so freaking rich. Um, <laughs> another quote that I think of often, it's, it's reflective of that. It's like, when we don't do what you just explained, treat ourselves of this, as this hunter warrior, and we're stalking ourselves. It's like having a master teacher living in your own home and never speaking to them. If we don't do that, 
if we're not peeling back the layers of our own inner world and really approaching it with this curiosity and compassion and thirst for knowledge and growth and evolution. I just love that so much. It, it, it just frames it beautifully. Like, oh, I have the master ta teacher within me and I love learning from other master teachers as well, but it's not to discount the teacher that I already have within myself. And unfortunately, a lot of the structures, a lot of the organizations that we are a part of as, you know, and as 3D individuals in this world, don't really do that where they're pointing you back to your own meta skills, your own inner teacher, your, your master guru that lives inside of you. So I love that. Absolutely. It's, it's totally, so yeah. everything we talk about. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'd love to just comment on something that Chase said that I found interesting was, you know, I, I study at the Whirling Rainbow Foundation with a woman named White Eagle Medicine Woman. And she's taught me this, this sort of this framework for understanding um, really all the energies um, that we may come across. So, you know, if you look at the four directions, you have obviously north, south, east, and west, right? The way that the Native Americans look at those directions is on, on the north-south axis, you have what they call your substance shield, which is the gender you're born with. So in the north would be our male, adult male, kind of our wise elder male. And in the south would be our young boy. And the opposite would be for a female. And then in the East, we would have our young girl. And in the West, we'd have the old wise woman inside of us. And they believe that these are literally like orbs or balls of energy that live around our navel. And that in order to move into the center or to be a complete human, you have to have healed all four of these different mm -hmm. parts of yourself, right? so that everyone really is boy, girl, man, woman, and then moving into the center as a complete um, human being. And so often one of these, we have traumas in one of these different shields and they can kind of get frozen. Or, you know, you, you, you may hear of, of something when someone says, oh, I just saw you and you look so much younger or you look so much older. It's literally a shield coming onto our face. And mm -hmm. then that's the way that we're, we're seeing the world in that moment. And through various things that could happen to us, you know, you know, one aspect of the four could be the, you know, predominant one that we're seeing through, which is obviously limiting. But the interesting thing about what you said about the warrior is in that tradition, the East is the warrior. Mm -hmm. And for a man, the East is their young girl. Hmm. So how do you be a warrior with that girl energy? Right. And then for a woman, it would be how do you be that warrior with that masculine energy? Mm -hmm. But so a warrior to them is in this context of a warrior that's also has this feminine energy. And these are not so much gender oriented. Right. It's really just like yin and yang or masculine yeah. and feminine in terms of, of the quality of energy, you know, linear or nonlinear. It's not really about gender, but it's just, you know, kind of a way that we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. But so how to be a warrior, but also to be vulnerable, mm. you know, showing up and being present, but being who you are authentically are. The word courage is appropriate here. And courage comes from the word core, which means from your heart. Mm. So it's showing up as a warrior from your heart, being authentic in your power, being who you are. And they have this quote that says, not being at the effect of anyone at any place at any time. 
being who you really are. So that's really what this archetype of the warrior is all about. And I just wanted to kind of add that because yeah. you, you opened that door. No, it's beautiful. Yeah, and and, and what comes up for me too is, is the, a part of a warrior and that hunting tracking is, is being in tune with your senses. And that is a feminine practice. It's the ability to be in tune with uh, nudges and be able, being able to listen and being in your feels, if you will, for that sort of like hunting tracking mm -hmm. mentality. And so that makes complete sense. Um, yeah. Freaking love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is so juicy. We're going to, we're going to have an awesome yeah. episode. And, and ju just, just to finish that off the other parts of the wheel in the South, you'd have your inner healer in the West, you have your inner teacher and in the North, you have your inner visionary. And then there's all sorts of different things that get laid on top of this wheel, like in the east would be the color yellow for the yellow race. In the south is black, um, I'm sorry, is red for the red race. West is black for the black race and white for the north. Mm. Mm. And so it's really seeing yourself as all colors, all races. You know, the east would be spring, the south summer, the west fall, north mm. winter. And then there's animals, you know, in the east we have the humans. In the south, we have the fish and the snakes. In the west, we have the four-leggeds. And then in the north, we have the flying animals, the birds. Wow. So, and this, go, this goes on for on, yeah. on forever. <laughs> wow, that is God, so cool. So it makes so much sense too, especially when you're speaking to um, the different aspects of the masculine and feminine and these different energies that we can embody. And, and I, how much uh, healthier... Um, dynamic and how much healthier expression of all of those different energies would we have if we were learning this from a young age um that's that's so cool and and uh, i love that you know thinking because i don't i very rarely have i ever thought like am i expressing my little boy you know but just the way that you frame it is is so beautiful and it definitely gives me some things to think about for sure and, yeah. and i say to chase all the time well not all the time but but frequently enough um, how many times do I say to you, I just saw your little chase. Yeah, yeah. He will have a certain expression on his face that reminds me of the little boy chase that I've seen in pictures and home videos and everything. And um, it's just certain times where it'll, it'll show me, he'll show me like this glimpse of, you know, the little boy that exists in him. Boyish and, charm. Yeah. And, and, but it's not like you're anything that you're trying to do. It's literally just a flash because yeah. I know you inside and out. And, uh, it just, it, that, that's, that came up for me when you were talking, I was like, I, I see that in him and, uh, totally. and that, I, I love it. Yeah. That's the essence of shape shifting. Mm. We're shift, we're shifting shape into one of those parts of ourselves, um, for that moment. And that's the filter in which we're seeing the experience at that time. Yeah. That makes mm. so much sense. Oh, so good. Could you, could we start with, you know, you, I know you wear so many hats and so it would be impossible for us to uh, try to give you some limited title on our end, but for our listeners who do not know of you, um, could you give us a, a brief summary of what you do in the world today and, and how you help people? We'll get to your, your, you know, whole background story and everything, but just giving people a taste right up front here of, of who you are and what you do in the 3d world as it is today. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think, I think it might be helpful if I combine those two, Yeah, if that's okay. Totally. Yeah, and, and before I do that, I just wanted to, it's kind of answers this question, but a little bit out of order. One of the things I do with my clients is this, this um, practice of balancing the shields. And so what we literally do is in a room, we set up a center stool and then four chairs around the stool representing the North, South, East, and West in those directions. 
And then what the client does is they walk around and they literally sit in the chair. And then, you know, they're not really thinking about, oh, this chair is the West. So that's my, you know, old woman or, or a young boy or whatever. They just kind of intuitively pick a chair. And then they sit in that chair and I explain to them what chair they're in. And mm-hmm. then they see, they see uh, through that, that eyes, right? So I'd be sitting in that chair and I'd be saying, I am a seven-year-old boy and, you know, such and such happened to me. Or I am a 80-year-old woman and this is what I'm feeling and sensing. And so it's an actual experience to go back in and relive those shields see what any of the traumas or the you know the experiences were that need to be healed and resourced and then bringing taking out that resource back into the world so i just wanted to share that because we talked a lot about about these things but you know my story is um it's kind of interesting you know my when, when i was born i was really into drumming and magic and you know to any parents out there i think you know catching what your children are into before any influences is is likely the ticket to what they're going to want to do for their whole life and be happy at it. But so I got into drumming and magic, but I quickly kind of pushed that dream aside to wanting to become a famous uh, Wall Street trader. Uh, my dad, my dad was in, in Wall Street and I went to visit, you know, all of these different places that he worked and I just got exposed to this energy and was just totally drawn to it. The freedom, the competitiveness, you know, the money, the excitement, the, the sort of the fraternal locker room type of atmosphere, especially at the time, you know, that was just kind of appealing to me. So I went through a very kind of mainstream education, went to the University of Virginia, you know, really only focused on on financial trading when I was there and did well in sort of those topics to the extent that they were offered. And I quickly moved into the trading world and became a weather trader, um, which is sort of a a weird thing to to say, but, you know, essentially what I stepped into was using the weather as my information source to predict how commodities would behave based on their sensitivity to the weather at different times. So without going down a long rabbit hole, you know, just in case anyone's interested, for example, natural gas in our country is a you know, really big source of heat. And depending on how hot or cold it is in the winter, let's say in New York or Chicago, will depend on how much demand there is for, to heat the home. Uh, the same thing happens with crops, with corn or soybeans, all these really pathetic hundred of, hundred millions of acres of uh, GMO crop. But, you know, this commoditized market moves off of the yield, you know, is essentially the supply and how much it rains or how hot or cold it is will drive those markets. So this is what I was into. By 26 years old, I was working for my dream boss, Paul Tudor Jones, who is one of the most famous traders of all time, um, a total legend a billionaire and amazing guy. And I was a portfolio manager here at my dream job. By 27 years old, I was ranked as one of the top 30 traders under 30 years old in the world. Um, I was becoming the youngest partner ever at this hedge fund. I was making millions and millions of dollars, but I weighed 330 pounds. Wow. I didn't have a, I didn't have a clue how to li- live successfully in my own body and I was in a really precarious state of health. So I had this like ultimate paradox that to, to the degree that I was successful in business, to that same degree, I was unsuccessful in taking care of myself. Mm. I, fe- I felt an incredible aloneness. You know, I felt very small to the extent that I was this huge person and this confident trader. Um, I was that 
unconfident on the inside about myself. So I kind of had this realization that all of these things that I was chasing on the outside were not making me feel good on the inside. Um, I partied bigger and bigger. I would go to the best nightclubs, limousines, private jets, champagne, all of it, but none of it would fill me up, okay? And after having this extreme kind of emergency health situation around the ages of 27, 28, I started to exercise. And I met this Hungarian trainer named Chaba who took me down into his like Rocky and Russia style basement. No window, no windows, you know, like no water breaks, like CrossFit on steroids and just like grinded it out like a total madman, you know, before my very stressful job or after my very stressful job, I'm like racing through traffic after trading all day to get to this like dungeon with no sunlight and all, you know, no all, only artificial light and all this stuff, you know, in the in, in like the financial district of New York City and just like crushed it in the gym for two years. And I went from 330 pounds to 160 pounds. Wow. And yeah, it was a pretty incredible transformation that, you know, was uh, really added a lot to my resiliency and mental fortitude. But the problem was in that moment, and I didn't realize this at the time, but I had only transferred my addiction to what I was looking for in that partying and in the yeah. trading and all of that and the excess to now being a work uh, exerciseaholic, mm. right? Which I know many of us can probably relate to of yeah. at times we've, we've over-exercised, right? Or mm -hmm. focused too much on our physical body, right? So at that time, you know, we had, we had known of Paul Check because Chaba had, had known him from some, sometimes in the past. So we sent him this video of me in the gym doing like, you know, jump squats and cable pulls and deadlifts. And we're like, look at this stud, you know, he just went from 330 pounds to 160. Like he's such a badass, you know, look at him go. And Paul wrote back, said, this guy is totally fried. Mm -hmm. He's got stage four adrenal fatigue. Wow. He needs to take, he needs to take two years off from exercise. Wow. What and were, sorry, if we can pause there for yeah, yeah. a second. Jump in. When you, what were, what were you thinking, one, when you sent that video out, what was filling your body, if you can remember, if you can tap back in, and then yeah. what were you thinking or feeling when you received that feedback from Paul? It, yeah, it was like, you know, the same thing I had been looking for, which was this, this appreciation from achievement from external sources, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're not really getting into this yet, but I'll just, this might be an interesting segue. You know, in process work, which I study, our earliest childhood memories or our, our, our childhood dreams, our first childhood dreams that we remember, that we could still remember, offer like insight into our core powers and our core wounding. And mm -hmm. for me, one of the earliest memories I, I, I work with is I came home from school at six or seven years old with my first report card. I gave it to my mother, thinking that I was gonna get rewarded. And, you know, I'm not really sure exactly how it went down, but to her, it was not good enough for the reward. And I just flipped out and mm -hmm. I threw myself into the air and I smashed my head against this flower pot. And like, that was this big event. And until, until you know, through this moment, I was really just chasing that report card, right? Like trading is this ultimate report card. Every day, every second of a day, you're getting feedback on how you're doing and it's a standalone thing and it's just constant report cards. 
and I became like the best students and, you know, working my ass off. And, you know, so sending this video to Paul was sort of just, I think, looking still for that external kind of recognition of that I'm good enough, you know, yeah. I'm enough, yeah. right? And like I said, core power and core wound, it's really a double-edged sword because it drove me to, to the heights of my success. And it's like not something that I want to be against because I can use that to my advantage, but it also holds my core wounding, which is never feeling enough or working myself to death, you know, in, in this sort of unending um, process. So, you know, just to, to finish off this thought, the second part, see, our, our dreams also hold the solution. So this falling back, this letting go, and this metaphorical mm. cracking of a pot, right? Mm. Opening my mind and opening minds of others and letting go and surrendering, mm. you know, cracking the way I look at the word world. That was the, also the magic and the key that was waiting, you know, until for about 30 or 40 years for me to turn back mm. and discover that. Um, but to, to finish your question, yeah, when Paul said that to me, it was like a complete ego death. Mm. You know, it was like, well, you want me to do what? This is my whole life. You yeah. know, I had put everything aside. I had put my whole social life aside. I, I, I invested everything into health. And I realized now that, you know, I was still just as unhealthy. I was completely burnt out. You know, he said I went from soggy white bread to burnt toast, right? Mm. Life was still, life was still really flat and dry. And so at that time, you know, I started getting into all these sorts of inner, inner works, you know, and it's kind of funny because Paul said, you got, you, you can't work out, but you can work in. Right. So I'm like, all right, I learned about that. And I, and I learned that, you know, Qigong is working in. So I go to a Qigong master and he says, okay, you know, stand in this tree pose. Right. And so now I'm standing in this tree pose for an hour and I'm just like shaking and like, you know, like Paul's like, no, dude, you don't get it. It's like, that's that's like working out man you're like your your freaking quads are like on fire and you're like you know like you got to just let go of this you know and so it, it was a long process in that and letting go and i started learning about meditation i met a wonderful tai chi master who i'm still with today and now you know i'm i'm a master teacher myself in that and all sorts of other modalities and it really around 2010 i went out to see paul in his house in vista and i had my first shamanic experience and not only that shamanic experience, but just being around Paul and feeling his energy and, and giving, you know, him giving me um, permission to play, yeah. and to, yeah. to live, to do art, to roll on the ground, to have fun being healthy, and that it can be actually not this flat, dry, like in the basement, you know, being outside, climbing a tree, you know, doing whatever makes you feel good, right? The best kind of exercise is the one that you're willing to do and that you enjoy that kind of attitude was infectious in me. And, you know, that was the first time I felt like I am enough. And I moved from started to move from achievement and accomplishment to nourishment. Mm. And so, yeah, so just to kind of finish that off, I started learning about Paul's four doctors, which I'm sure you know, you and many of your listeners are probably familiar with Dr. Quiet, Dr. Diet, Dr. Movement and Dr. Happiness. And I started incorporating these into my everyday life at work. So, you know, doctor diet, I brought my own organic food to work. I brought my own um, water to work, right? Um, I was thinking about how am I digesting my emotions and handling all of the stress? Doctor movement, getting the right 
balance of working in and working out, you know, making sure I had a standing desk or sitting on a Swiss ball or, you know, kneeling or, you know, just moving every hour, all these kinds. Am I breathing, right? Dr. Quiet, am I taking enough time for rest? Am I reflecting about my process? Am I journaling about my process? You know, um, am I taking time during the day to meditate and to kind of get into slightly altered states to see things differently? And then Dr. Happiness, am I doing what I'm, I, I love to do and finding this purpose in my life? So that all went along where I was like this Zen trader for quite a while. <laughs> and around, around two, 2017, I had a really wild experience with my, my first wife. She, after having her second child, had a, went into a really extreme state of what we would call uh, classically mental illness. Um, I don't like to really use those terms because I, I really think that those kinds of states are, are really kind of misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, they really have the potential to be um, spiritual emergences, emergences, right? Like mm -hmm. something is coming out of somebody, but they don't really have the awareness and how to integrate that and, and use it into their life. So instead of being like medicated and thrown away, they really need training. Yeah. But at that time, at that time, I wasn't prepared for that. I, you know, I was just kind of holding on. I was trading this $1 billion weather portfolio. I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old and I had an ex-wife where the wheels were spinning off. Wow. And this whole, pro this whole process and going through that really shifted me where I decided in 2019 that I wanted to, to move into a different field. I wanted to be, spend more time with my kids and I wanted to be in service. I wanted to explore all of these things that I had done and I wanted to be in sort of a professional role of helping people um, go through what I now call a life process, which is you know incorporating, having sat with like the titans of Wall Street and the great masters of the soul and the heart and all of my experiences uh, and wisdom from walking this path of knowledge and then meeting the client with where they're at with, with that. Mm. So that was a long, long Ugh. No, I love it. Story, but I, I, yeah. Hey friend, have you heard? Chase and I have finally done it and the secret is out. After living and breathing medicinal mushrooms for many years, we wanted to create our own mushroom elixir formulation, something that is delicious, obviously, but also reflective of two of our biggest passions in life, highest quality mushrooms and highest quality love. We named it Mushy Love Latte. Mushy Love includes a whopping full gram of organic mushrooms, chaga and tremella, to support your gut health, immunity, hydration, and beauty. It's caffeine-free, made with organic ingredients, and no gut-disrupting sweeteners. Oh, and it tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll. Mushy Love is launching this summer with a limited supply. So if you want to ensure a bag for yourself, make sure you get on our Mushy Love VIP list where you'll receive early pre-sale access, an exclusive discount, and behind the scenes content as we get ready to launch. To become VIP, just head to themedicine.com forward slash Mushy Love. That's M-U-S-H-Y-L-O-V-E or just check the show notes for the direct link. Let's get mushy, boo. Thank you for sharing it yeah. in, in that detail. Yes. Um, it resonates so deeply with me in so many, so many lanes and so many chords are struck uh, as you articulate your story. Um, obviously, we, we have some similarities. I have a financial background and uh, financial consulting and oddly enough was in like, like 
energy commodity derivatives. Like, I know. I, I heard that on a podcast. You talked yeah. about that and I was blown away. Yeah, completely wild. Like basically allowing utilities or coming up with ways that utilities could charge their uh, the poor energy users of their jurisdictions <laughs> um, more money for their for their uh, unrealized gains and losses. Uh, which was a an exercise in in kind of the greed of of that space, but um, and, and as it pertains to like exercise and the way you looked at exercise and and that just constant stress state, mm-hmm. like all I did was shuffle around for probably seven to eight years of my life. That stress state from my relationship to my work to my fitness and just like addicted to that constant yang that just mm-hmm. that constant push. To the degree that by the time I did get feedback, like Paul gave you, which was like, you're exhausted. When I finally heard that, it was a little bit of an ego, like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. I'm healthy. But my inner voice was like, yeah, man, you're very tired. You need to chill the fuck out. <laughs> and and that's a consistent message that I get when I go through shamanic practices or through ceremonies is like rest, chill, work in, even the work that I've done with Paul on working in, I have resistance to. It's such a uncomfortable state, rest. I don't even, I'm still figuring it out at 32 years old. And so just hearing your story again, is just like so deeply resonating. And my inner voice is still telling me like rest. It's like, it's okay to rest. Yeah. I think we both deal with this uh, to diff- to varying degrees but it's something that I we've talked about on on our show before but um you know finding validation in external achievement and really having that balance of okay I have big dreams and goals and what's our legacy what's our high dream that we're working towards in life what do we want to leave this world balanced with it's okay to take a nap. It's okay to take the afternoon off. If your body's telling you that I have to, I don't want to use that word. Um, I'm consistently invited to like convince myself that it's okay to rest. And uh, I think that that's something that a lot of people deal with. And I don't know where that comes from. Maybe you have some insight here, but I feel like it's almost like an epidemic of our culture and society, especially in the West, is that if you're going to rest, a lot of people need to be convinced to or get to a state that you spoke about and Chase spoke about. I certainly had my own health issues related to stress and overexertion. Um, You know, I was doing HIIT workouts, eight eight times a week and, you know, getting up at four 30 to do cardio and then going to my very busy job, coming back and doing another, you know, exercise, like whole, you know, working out, lifting and, and running and sprinting. And I, we were separated. So we were apart and we were having almost mirror experiences with our health. You know, our hormones were absolutely tanked. I had explosive inflammatory acne all over my face. I couldn't digest any food. I didn't have any stomach acid. I had a rash on half of my body that was completely unexplained. No doctor could tell me what it was. I, 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 my hair was falling out in chunks. Like I, and I was a health coach on the side of being a dental hygienist. So we both had these very similar experiences where we, it's like we, we separated, we divorced and we went gung ho yeah. into like, I'm gonna show the world something. And I feel like this is a really common thing that people that people experience. Um, 
coming back to, I started to ask you a question. Do you have any insight of where this comes from in the world or in us that we feel like we have to convince ourselves to rest? Totally. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it seems like we all share um, a similar process. And, you know, by, by talking about this, we we're doing this for every, all the listeners, because so many of us likely share this. If it's in us, it's in everyone. And so, you know, this is a very common thing. I mean, we live in this American culture, right? There's this American dream that we all, you know, many of us, our, our, our ancestors immigrated here for the search of this sort of like capitalistic material, you know, more, you know, better, bigger, more stuff, right? And so in Arnie Mandel and Process Work calls, the, calls that a city shadow. Mm. You know, it's not really something that's necessarily ours, but it's a product of our parents, our religions, our society, our culture, um, you know, our ancestors. And oftentimes these things can be viewed as ghost roles ghost roles, which is like a, a kind of funny thing to think about. But if you think about like, you know, anytime you're in the bedroom with your partner, there may be like five or six ghosts in the room. And I'm not talking about like disembodied souls, even though they may be there. I don't know. But like these voices about our from our parents and our grandparents and our, and our culture about what a man is supposed to do or say, or what a woman is supposed to do or say, or what a relationship is supposed to look like, or what you can't say, to, you know, in bed, or what role you can't take on in the bedroom, you know. So there's all of these voices that are happening all the time. So, you know, this idea that again, like just like my process, that success comes from achievement and accomplishment is just in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, it's in this capitalistic, materialistic culture. And really what that comes from, in my opinion, is what the Vedas would call a, a misidentification as the material world and the physical body as us, mm. right? It's, we're forgetting that deep inside, we are actually something else. Yeah. And so we have this like very primary focus that the goal is more stuff, more, 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 but that just turns us into morons, really, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so like, it's really like a turning within, but that's really secondary to all of us. So back to my childhood dream, this primary process, which is my life myth and my life edge that I'm constantly dealing with, no matter how much I've worked on it, is this process of action or doing versus being. You know, it's how do I bring in more way, woo, way or action without action? How do I just enjoy what I have and feel like enough mm -hmm. instead of going after, you know, one more certification or, you know, another dollar or another this or another that, right? And so I think so many of us share this because we are all, you know, immersed in this American culture. Now, if you go to a place like Spain and they're taking a siesta for three hours in the afternoon, or, you know, you go to Italy and they take August off to go to the beach, like th that, that's a different culture, you know? And yeah. so- this is a product of sort of our culture. You know, I think many others probably are like this now as we westernize the world with our belief systems. And, you know, they obviously take them on um, for better or for worse. But yeah, that th th this idea of this being sort of a shared experience, a shared process that many of us, that many of us go through. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Definitely. Yeah, it's. I come from an athlete background, it's trophies, right? It's achievements, it's winning, and you're acknowledged when you do so. In fact, you know, myself, I was a brutally shy young boy, brutally shy, clung to the leg of my mother. I didn't feel 
worthy of acknowledgement until I was an athlete. And then it just opened up a, a lane of confidence and a host of other things. But I was kind of attached to that mm-hmm. performance-driven, outcome-driven uh, dictation of my worth. And that's layered into so many other lanes of, of my life. And, and it's really, for me, like, where am I attached to an outcome? Where do I have expectation driving my pursuits in life rather than the present moment, rather than removing expectation, uh, rather than, uh, you know, or, or removing that attachment to an outcome and ensuring that that lane of life that life that I'm in is fruitful, is rewarding, allows me to have those moments where I forget what time it is because I'm so immersed in the process of creating, of the play, and taking note of those times because that's indicative of being present, the fact that you've removed a a predefined outcome from your expectations and allowed to just enjoy and be present. And so like, as I still navigate that default mode pattern, for me, it's like a consistent reminder to remove expectation and disassociate from a predefined outcome in whatever Mm -hmm. I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So just one thing on that, it's like those, that secondary process, which we can call it, it's the part of us that's we're, we're evolving into, but is less known to us where the achievement is more of our primary process. It's what we identify with and it's what is known to us. That secondary process will show up in little flirts and flickers. It'll, it'll almost like dangle carrots right mm-hmm. out for us metaphorically. Yeah. So it might be in a little flirt of something that catches our eye or a synchronicity or a fantasy or a dream at night. But if you don't pay attention to those little subtle hints, it'll show up in a body symptom, mm-hmm. which will show up then in a, in a, in a sickness and an illness, eventually disease and death. Right? So, you know, when you're talking about pulling out your hair and your acne, you know, Many of us would say like, oh, that's a disturbance. Like, I got to get rid of this thing. But in actuality, you know, the way a shaman would look at that would be, that's your ally. It's really, it was really there to awaken you to what parts of yourself you've forgotten and to steer you back to, you know, away from this, only in this primary process to step more into your wholeness, right? And recapture this like slowing down and doing less. And, and, you know, and that kind of thing. So I just wanted to say yeah. that sometimes these things will show up in various ways and it's always happening, right? Our psyche is always helping us to awaken us to our, our wholeness. And this happens through this dreaming nature of reality that is around us all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I love that. I... Oh, and one more thing, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, that, that Chase mentioned is in the Vedas, they have this idea of, 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 karma fala which is like the fruits of our actions and you know you mentioned the fruits of your actions and so karma being sort of like the the effects of our of the cause and effect of our actions from life to life and follow being the fruits of that but what they say is we we can make the choice but then the rest is up to something bigger than ours mm-hmm. us like we we actually don't have we can't control the outcome. We can control the choice. And that really gets back to focusing on the action, focusing on the choice and focusing on the, on the process, but letting go of the result mm-hmm. because we can't control that anyway. And so like Chase said, really attaching to the result with expectations is really where we get into a lot of traps because that's not something that we can determine anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like this built in the way that you're talking about it. It's almost like this built in um, penetration and surrender dancing back and forth because yes, you need to, we, we get to penetrate the world with our dream, but then what you're talking about is ultimately you have to surrender to the bigger picture, the bigger plan, the things that are outside of your control. And if we continue to penetrate, 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 and, and seek to control every aspect of that, like it's going to lead to probably burnout, adrenal fatigue, disease, and probably an unfulfilling life because you're not sitting in that surrender mode where it's like, okay, I did what I can do. I did my best and I'm here for the ride. Yeah. 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 Perfectly. But, um, would love to move in a little bit as we continue to get to know you a little bit. Um, what are your views? And we've talked a lot about some, some, you know, metaphysical related subject matter. What are your views on God, the divine, um, some higher metaphysical energy? Is there anything that you subscribe to from, uh, you know, an, an epistemology standpoint or religious standpoint? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So the first thing I'll say is that that's a hard thing to talk about because, you know, if you ask a hundred people, what is God? Mm-hmm. Every, every one of them will give you a different answer, right? Yep. Because it's not something that in, in our language, the English language is actually um, limited, which is why Sanskrit, who, you know, has this sort of metaphorical symbolic language that has for thousands of years explored the depth, the depths of altered states. Like we have words like spirituality, but spirituality just means to breathe. So if someone says, yeah, I'm really spiritual. Okay. Yeah. You're breathing, but it doesn't <laughs> tell me anything about your process. Right? So, you know, with that being said, I'll do my best to, to talk about my experience. And so, you know, when the Buddha was asked about what is God, he went completely silent. And, you know, in Judaism, which is uh, the religion that I grew up in, they, they, when they write out God, they write G-D. Now, when I was a kid, it was taught to me like Yahweh will get you, you know, like this yeah. is like a judge. You, you never do that because God forbid you write out God, you know, it's like sacrilegious. But in reality, it's this idea that by naming God, you're already missing the point, right? Because once you try to say that God is this or that, or God wants this or that, you negate the fact that God is omni, which is all and everything, right? God is that for which there is no other, right? In the Tao Te Ching, they say that the Tao is older than God, mm. meaning that the idea of God that somebody had to say and point to something, what came after the source that produced all of that, right? And so what I've learned recently is that the word God is actually quite an uh, ironic word because it comes from a Sanskrit word named, uh, called Hutam. So Hutam is named only four times in the Bhagavad Gita, which is 701 verses. And while the name for this, what they call the Supreme Being that we're kind of calling God in English, they call it Bhagavan or Sri Krishna, comes up countless times, you know? So this word Hutam was translated into German as Gutam, which then went into Dutch as Gut, and then went to English as God. Mm. Mm. And so the irony is that what Hutam is, is like a pagan offering. It, It was the smoke that rose from a fire, you know, in the olden days, you know, we, we, we have all this like electricity and stoves and everything like now, but you would go out 
and you look for fallen down branches or dead trees and you'd bring back the wood because you, you, you didn't want to cut down a perfectly good tree because you, you were living in reciprocity with nature. You knew the importance that we're literally, you know, making out with trees. We're exchanging air, right? <laughs> Oxygen for carbon dioxide every second of the day. You, you know the importance. So you never cut down a perfectly good tree. So you're searching for fallen down branches. You bring it back. You're lighting this fire. You're having your food. And then you're making an offering to the personified laws of nature, which is the devas for being in gratitude, being in reciprocity for having received that meal. It's not for asking for something, oh, please give me this or that. It's just really a gratitude, right? And then to finish that off, you would take the, you would take the ashes, put it back in the soil, so you replenish the soil, so you can have healthy food, which mm -hmm. is why they say in the Bible, the sins of the parents will be cast upon the third and fourth generations, because if you don't replenish the soil, if we keep doing what we're doing in the Midwest, monocropping everything and destroying the topsoil, the third and fourth generations will suffer because they'll be their their IQs will be lower because they don't have the, the macronutrients and all of the nutrients in the soil. But so back to Hutam, Hutam was this smoke that was offered to the to the devas. So what the Christian church really went around the world trying to eradicate this idea of paganism, this idea of worshiping the laws of nature is ironically what they now call God, right? So when you think of God, think of holy smokes. Mm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But just to continue on to, to kind of wrap that up, you know, God is defined and, you know, I think you guys know this, but by Joseph Campbell as an intelligible source whose circumference is nowhere and whose center is everywhere, right? But to break that down a little bit, when you go into the center, of let's say the center of a circle, you realize that if you blow up or expand that center, there's a now there's a new center, an even finer center. And then if you blow up that center, there's even another center. And this goes on and on for, for infinity, right? Yeah. So what this is really saying is that God is really infinity being expressed everywhere in everything. Mm. So e each of us, whoever we are, wherever we are, are in this center are in touch with this mind of at large and the laws of nature, you know, and, and so Paul check as well uses this example of God being a zero. So in this case, God is like a net sum zero bank. It's like the banker that's not looking for any profit or loss or almost like the market. It's not taking a position. It's just facilitating both sides. So for every deposit that is taken, a credit has to be taken. So if you dig a big hole and you put the dirt next next to you, the same pile of dirt, the same amount of dirt will be next to you as that you took out of the hole. So God is this ultimate love boomerang. So whatever you borrow or whatever you create that either supports life or is against life ultimately has to re be repaid back in some form or another. So that's the karma, the, the consequences of this cause and effect from life to life. And, you know, just to wrap this up, something that's really caught me lately is in the Vedic scriptures, they talk about the supreme being you know, we can say God, but we know now that that's not really the right term as Bhagavan. Bhaga meaning all the beauty. Mm. And Vaan mean, means the one who possesses, right? So thus, Bhagavan is the beauty that we see around us that makes life worth living. Mm. And they break this down into six categories of beauty, abundance, fame, knowledge, strength, and detachment. And this is not a masculine 
or male entity. This is not even just a female, it's a they. It's a masculine and it's a feminine energy. And they use the word achintia, which means it's inconceivable. We can't even use our minds to conceive it. It's beyond our thinking faculty. And in these teachings, the, this supreme energy is not here as a judgmental, critical God, but really as like a BFF. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, imagine like a teenage boy or a teenage girl, like wanting to flirt with like a classmate, you know, it's like just waiting to just play with you and make love with you and dance with you. And all you have to do is be curious about it and just say, you know, great spirit, Bhagavan, God, universe, come dance with me, come play with me, and it will meet you wherever you, where you are at. You know, imagine this like completely overpowering force. If it came at you with like its fullness, it would just, you know, demolish us, right? It'd be like a giant wrestling with a child. So it'll come and meet you with wherever you're at in your life, however much you're willing to go into it, it'll come, it'll play for you, play with you. And it's just, it's just waiting there. So to me, that's what God is. And my sort of worldview is that we should be teaching about the soul in kindergarten. We should know who we really are, that we are an Atma, an immortal, indivisible individual. Don't throw away our individuality, but also know that we also come from a place of oneness as well, right? Get rid of this one lifetime worldview that we only have one life and we can just you know, destroy the earth and spit it out and take, 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 and there's no consequences. The idea that there's no divine feminine is a parasite. You know, it's, it's the worst thing out there yeah. to think that we live in, in just a masculine identity. God is just childish, right? Yeah. If anyone knows anything to see of the intelligence of a woman, you know, what, what, ha, what can a man birth, right? You think a man can birth all, every, all of existence? But, you know, the idea being that it's both. It's clearly both, right? And it's clearly not even a gender. It's just a, 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 an energy. Um, and last, lastly, this idea that we have a purposeful universe, right? And so for me, with these ideas, you know, it's never about coercion. It's never for conversion, it's just about conversation. And I think that's what we need to, to really um, get back to, because yeah. we have a lot of people trying to convert based on their beliefs. So I'll just throw that out there because I don't want anyone to believe anything I said just because I said it, um, but that's just my experience. Hey homies, if you're anything like Chase and I, you really enjoy exercise and building a healthy, strong body. Obviously, what we do inside the gym is important, but what we do outside of the gym is just as critical to our success, like the supplements you're using to support your results. One of our favorite conscious body brands is called Keon. We've both been using Keon for a few years now for muscle building, strength, and recovery. Keon is well known for being super clean, super tasty, and super effective. Our supplement trifecta. Chase and I both use the aminos, the whey protein, and the creatine on a regular basis. Yes, creatine is for women too. And Keon's is top of the top shelf. 
To learn more about Kion, head to our medicine cabinet at themedicine.com and use the code medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for a nice discount on any and all Kion products. Enjoy. Beautifully, beautifully put. I'm like, I don't know if you can tell, but I found myself like leaning into the screen because I was resonating so much with what you were saying, especially the part about beauty. Um, I, we were just talking about this on an episode a couple back, um, how I interact with God, what I use, you know, what I think of as God, um, you know, coming from the evangelical church, there's a lot of emphasis around prayer and sacrifice and you know thinking about the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and making sure that you're in constant prayer with God and going to church and talking about it and trying to convert people and I looking back I I did all these things because I was trying to be a good Christian girl but I never really felt anything super deep in my soul compared to coming out you know over the last three or four years, really asking myself, what do I believe and what resonates in my soul and starting to peel back the layers of that, of, of my own spirituality, my own breathing. Um, the way that I interact with the intelligence that I believe to be God is getting lost in beauty. And that's picking up a leaf and looking at the intricacies of all the capillaries and the veins and how they work together to create this beautiful piece of nature or going on a hike with Chase and just standing at the top of a mountain and breathing this air in or shoving my nose into the most fragrant rose and just letting it fill my lungs. That, those, the feeling that I get from those interactions with that beauty is how I interact with God and what I think I was searching for and probably what many others are searching for when they go about these different practices in religion, whether it be Christianity or Islam or Catholicism, whatever it is, we're looking for this experience. And (laughs) it wasn't until I stopped praying that I actually felt God in my interactions. Yeah, it's, it's like coming back to this this idea that you're talking about where we're just a masculine world. And for me and my experience of God, we both grew up evangelical Christian, my masculine, very rational, very uh, left to right, top to bottom brain could not make sense of this. Couldn't make sense of this God thing to the degree that I'm the kid. I'm K through 12 Christian school, Christian college. I'm like, not buying it front row, not buying it. What's going on here. There's a disconnect because this doesn't make sense. So you either have to just say, I won't know, I'm going to outsource it to the authorities, or you have to leave this, this approach of trying to understand God with a rational brain. It wasn't until it was through plant medicine, it wasn't until I experienced something that was outside of the English language that I couldn't put to my tongue and, and tell somebody about, but that I felt that there was something outside of this physical existence where I was somehow completely minuscule in in the grand scheme yet still important yet still a perfect piece of this but that it was part of everything and i was like uh, god is that it, it, that, that's got to be it that's got to be what these people are trying to talk about but it only took the feminine 
it, it, it had to take the feminine of experiencing it. Now, I have thoroughly enjoyed trying to rationalize these various experiences of God over the last three to four years in, in as many ways as I, as I can with, with language and, and study and structure and great thinkers. But at the end of the day, it's still this unknown mystery, this beautiful mystery that can only be felt and attempted at telling. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And just, just a few things that you guys made me think of there. Um, you know, praying is like a precarious action. It's like, there's, there's a sense of fear, like, you know, Oh, you know, I'm in trouble possibly, you know, it's, it's like, please help me. But that's not the way that it's really expressed in the Veda culture. Um, the Veda culture has more of this idea of Shraddha, which is conviction. You know, it's not blind faith, but it's like con there's a conviction that you know what you're doing is right. That based on your experiences and your wisdom of, of you know, and your knowledge of going through this way of doing, um, way of looking at the world, that you have that conviction. So it's interesting because, you know, it's, it's not when you're, when, you're, when you're in that space and you're doing mantras and you're having that direct experience of that, it's, we, we might use the word praying in English, but, you know, praying is really more for the Abrahamic religions that's coming more from a place of fear. And, you know, in the Vedic um, kind of worldview, you know, it's an interesting thing because it's not a religion. It's not something to join. It's really more just like an offering. It's really more like, hey, this is a, an 8,000 year old plus science and philosophical worldview manual guidebook about how to live. And so one of the things that they say about this Bhagavan or this supreme being or this, you know, God energy is that it lives inside of our heart. And so it's this idea of free daya. Daya brought the English word dais or couch. So it's like on the seat of the couch in our heart sits this you know, eternity sits this uh, great spirit or Bhagavan God, you know, universe, right? So it's something inside of us. And so the fact is this, like you said, we're all searching for beauty. You know, you were searching for beauty. And I, I think if anyone really thinks about what is the purpose of their life, it's really to create more beauty and to find more beauty. But the problem is, is we're looking for that beauty on the outside. So we're thinking, oh, if I just get this car, I'll have, you know, then I'll have it. Or if I just look a certain way, then I'll have it. If I just have this, 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 or that. But the reality is, is that to all of us, we know that that never really fulfills us, right? Just like on my journey, that just never really gets us there. So instead of throwing away beauty and just saying, fuck it, you know, I'm done. It's a turning around and realizing that the beauty is within. Mm. And that having this relationship with the infinite, beautiful, supreme great spirit that lives inside of your own heart that that's where beauty is and so we're never really getting rid of the beauty or the search for beauty that's really almost it feels to me like why we're here mm -hmm. but it's it, it's turning around from what we're looking at and where we're trying to get that beauty from mm. yeah that's so good. perfectly put yeah i love that piece of of not only experiencing beauty in nature, in your loved ones, in your relationships, in your work in the world, but also obviously within yourself. And, and something that Zach Bush says, um, or no, it was Louis Arms, Louis uh, Schwartzberg. Mm. 
he's a great filmmaker and he he makes these amazing nature documentaries and uh he said that his primary purpose was to get people to fall in love with nature because and to find it beautiful because we want to protect what we find beautiful and i think that I, I I agree with him, but it makes me also think about what you're saying when we're talking about beauty on the inside and beauty on the inside of us, rather than maybe how we grew up in the evangelical church, you're taught from birth that you're bad, essentially at your core and you need saving that you and are. And if you have one, li- you have one life and if you don't do good, you're going yeah, to exactly. a, a eternal, a, eternal hell. Yeah. So it's like, Okay, good luck, you know. And how convenient is it that you can just make a couple, you know, transactional interactions with this higher power and you're good as long as you keep coming back every week. Yeah, don't don't worry, money takes away those problems. Yeah. 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 Right. It just makes me think about if if, you know, and this is certainly how I would want to raise a child is from the beginning teaching them and, and showing them and the way that I treat myself and Chase um, that you are good, you are beautiful, you have so much beauty inside of you, wanting to be uh, experienced and expressed, rather than, well, you're really bad at your core, but don't worry, there's these things outside of your body that will save you. And uh, I can only imagine the difference <laughs> in the child growing up with those two different views. And it, it really makes me curious about how you what values you are trying to instill with your very young children right now what does that look like for you and how how are you expressing to them uh this beauty and what you just explained to us yeah so this is obviously you know a huge topic and Mm -hmm. you know one, one of the things that i've recognized is that you know of course i keep referencing the vedas but they're just there's just so uh informational for me um, informative. So, you know, they talk about that as a soul, as an Atma, we choose our birth, right? We choose when to come in and who our parents are going to be. And we, we can actually choose when we're going to leave, right? There's some very advanced yogis that can go out into the mountains at the late stages of their life and actually choose like a countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, Six, five, four, three, two, one, blast off and 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 leave their bodies. Wow. And there's a lot of a lot of cultures, not only the Vedas, but many cultures like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, talk about these very specific ways in which how you know to prepare for dying and how you can die. And you know, the best time to die is this particular time of the year, or you know, between the winter equinox and the summer equinox, or between the full moon and the new moon, these kinds of all these kinds of things. But to that same degree, you know, that level of sophistication is is um happening on the way in and so for me as a parent you know i didn't i grew up in in a lot of privilege to some extent um financially and economically um but at the same time i didn't have any of this spiritual background so now that i have this in my life and my wife has this in, in her life and in our life and i'm seeing my kids entering down it's actually realizing that these are probably more advanced soul than I am, right? Mm-hmm. These are these are like past yogis coming into this family. Like they talk about in some of these books that in order to be born into a family that's on the yogic path or on any path of, of you know, we, we could say spirituality, we know it's not right anymore, but just on in, inner development and individuation and actually looking at their lives. It's actually like, a real rare gift, you know, it takes a person that's cultivated um, a level of self development in a past life. 
So for me, it was like this switch of, of turning around and looking at my children and realizing that, wow, they may be, you know, actually my teachers, right? Mm -hmm. They may be even more developed than me. And, you know, how do I ride this balance of guiding them and kind of showing them the way, but at the same time, trusting in their intuition mm -hmm. and what, what calls them, you know? So like, I may have this idea that you got to eat protein, right? You got to have, you got to eat protein in every meal or something like that. But then my child is saying, dad, I, you know, I, I want to be a vegetarian right now or something like that. I don't want to eat meat. And I'm like, no, you got to eat meat. You got to eat meat. But that's just my, my dogma, my belief system. And, you know, there may be a time and place where that might be true if I see, see it not working for them. But at the same time, I need to reflect that maybe there's like a wise yogi in there that like the thought of eating meat to them is like, you know, repulsive, right? Um, the same thing happened recently, you know, when I was at, at the, the dentist with, with my, my six-year-old, Anja, and she, we have these like things called ALFs. They're these um, very non-invasive little kind of invisible retainers that help their, their, their palate expand to optimize breathing and digestion and all these kinds of things to avoid, you know, having to have braces or any kind of TMJ problems later. And she was just having a flip out about getting this thing in her mouth, right? Like just screaming at the top of her lungs. And, you know, every part of me wanted to save her in that moment and just be like, all right, you don't have to do it. Let's get out of here. But I realized like, okay, am I being dogmatic about um, making her do this thing? Or is this actually in her best interest? And in that moment, I had to sit there and reflect. And I realized, you know what? This is actually something that is for her best interest. And she's going to grow a lot by having to get through this. She's going to become more resilient. And I can't bail her out on this one. And mm -hmm. so this was the time when I said, listen, there's no way out, but, it, you know, but through. Like, you got to surrender. The sooner you get out of here, the quicker we can go to the park and play and have fun. Let's just go for it. And I'm not letting you out of here. And that was like a really hard thing for me to do. So, you know, as a parent, I think it's riding this edge of when we have to kind of, you know, decide what the child should do and what's right for them versus, you know, really allowing them to express the, the fullness and the uniqueness of their own individuality and what they're here on earth to, to do, what their purpose is. And I think that's a really tough, tough edge. And it, it, it requires a lot of reflection. It requires asking the question, you know, what's in the best, best interest of the common good? What's in the best interest of the family or what's in the best interest of the child in this moment? And really looking at them from this level of a soul and not really like a mini, mini you that's mm -hmm. here to just follow in your footsteps. And I would say the last thing that my wife and I do really well gets back to this hunting, stalking and tracking herself. So much of what we do, you know, when you start to look at NET and do like, you know, um, tapping type things, and you can look at belief systems and actually muscle test yourself to see what belief systems you have in your body if your body is, is failing or, or, or going strong for, you know, a truthful statement like, you know, um, you know, one that's coming to my mind now is I can let go of the belief that love and life means, you know, as a parent, I have to decide what's right for my child, right? That's sort of what we're talking about. And you could literally muscle test yourself. And if you fail, that's a belief that you have. And you can just decide, do I want to keep that or change that? And if you want to change that, you can go through a, a, a tapping technique, which I'm sure you've seen various types of tapping before, mm -hmm. where you're just tapping on different meridian spots of your body. 
and you know, kind of breathing and releasing. And you could go back to the original time and you can even check to see if this is an inherited belief system. You know, in process work, we talk about the idea of psychological inheritance. And so, you know, we may be lucky enough to receive some money from our parents or a house or this when they die, but we also receive their psychological inheritance. We receive what their unmet tasks were. Mm -hmm. You know, what they didn't fulfill in their life gets passed down to us. Their traumas that get unprocessed gets passed down to us. And so as a parent, it's, it's, it's stalking yourself to get off that wheel to make sure that you free yourself so that you can free your children to be the true authentic expression of themselves and allow them to self individuate as they were meant to be mm -hmm. and oh. not get not getting too much in the way it's like i'm thinking of like bumper bowling yeah you know <laughs> yeah something yeah. like that yeah absolutely that's that's so wonderful and i i uh i love your your insights um you know obviously we don't have kids but we're intentionally talking about it. And even though we have no idea when it's going to happen, we're confident that it will. But I'm like, I'm feeling more and more of the nudge uh, to really start learning about, you know, um, how do I, what, what do we want to teach our child? How do we want to teach our child? How can we embody it in our life and really adopting and, and um, acquiring conscious parenting skills uh, to where you know, if it happened tomorrow or whenever it happens, I, I don't feel or we don't feel completely overwhelmed. Like we're already behind, you know, in trying to figure out how we want to raise a child. And, and because we, we um, put so much or, or see rather that it is such a huge responsibility that I think, um, unfortunately, a lot of people go into kind of as part of the mainstream script of happiness, where as soon as you get married, your family's asking you, when are you going to have kids? And I feel like a lot of people just get into this kind of escalator of, you know, okay, I'm riding the wave of life. And this is the next step. And maybe they're not thinking through all the way, how do we want to raise our child? What kind of home, what kind of energy, what kind of pregnancy do I want to have? And anyways, I, I, I'm really feeling the nudge right now in my life to start the process um, because it is such a grand one. It is such a hefty one, but ultimately can lead to even more spiritual development for us just in a new chapter, in a new way that I don't think you can experience necessarily unless you become a parent. Yeah, I would just be curious to ask a question. It's like, what do you think in this moment is is your biggest edge to that? Like, what is, you know, what what's holding you back from just really going for for that and just saying right now, you know, screw it, let's just you know tear off our clothes and, and have that baby. Like, <laughs> oh, you mean getting like, into actually being a parent right now? Yeah, like what 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 it's like? Is there is there a fear or is there something that's like that you have an edge to that's holding you back from just saying like? this is the time, there's no better time, yeah. let's go for it. Like, is, I'm just curious. Yeah. I, I know for me, um, right away, I still wanna travel. Um, and it's not to say that like, we wouldn't be able to do that with a child, but like, I wanna travel. Oh, it's very hard, yeah, it's yeah. very hard. <laughs> so like, I wanna see the world a little bit more. I've been very career oriented since college, really. Haven't, haven't uh, been overseas. Um, I'd like to accumulate, uh, just frankly, a little more money to purchase some some land up in Idaho so that we can build our our legacy home and our family home um, and would would love not to have to navigate having a, a child and, and prioritizing the child while those various things are going on. So 
those are the totally. first the first edges to me is it's more like rational practical thinking because i can get sort of drunk on the idea of being a father and being and 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 then forget some of those things that are also in my rational plan of life yeah um some of those i share but i would say a larger a sharper edge for me is two things i would be lying if i said that i'm not still healing my relationship with my body image. And because the whole process of becoming a, a mother is such a transformational one, body, certainly mind, spirit, soul, everything, priorities, but the seeing what a woman's body goes through to bring a child into this world, I have felt in the past that I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I have a healthy enough body image to put myself through that ringer uh, in the way that I want to, where it's like, this is beautiful. What's happening to my body is beautiful and it's a transformation and I love it, you know, and really enjoying the process rather than, uh, feeling like this is happening to me and my body is a stranger now, which is what I hear from so many women where it's like, I don't even recognize my body anymore. That sounds really scary to me. The second would be, um, <laughs> this is, um, I have had a, a fear that I believe has been rooted in a past life. And we did a, a past life episode with Roseanne Grace. Are you familiar? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I took, I've had some sessions with her. She's okay. great. We had a, a, a past life regression experience and I, I, um, I had shared with her after the fact, but I have this like fear inside of me or, or had it, um, and as we did this past life regression, what came out was in two different lives. One, uh, I had a, a horrific uh, death, basically birthed a child and she died shortly thereafter. And then in the other life that we regressed on, um, I was a, a young mother we, and we were fleeing people who were trying to kill us essentially. And um, so I've, I've since you know, been able to like recognize like, okay, that was from a previous life. I don't have to carry that fear in this life. And it could be a completely different experience, could be completely beautiful. So Roseanne really did help me through that. Um, but those are my two edges that come up for me. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's just, thank you for sharing that. That's just so amazing. And, you know, I don't think we have the time to really unpack that, but like, you know, th these things, these fears, you know, the things that we we, if we think about what do we fear the most of dying from, or what do we, what do we fear the most, you know, and we, we go into the energy behind that, we can find that underneath that is actually an energy that we can explore and see if it has some meaning for us in our life. So, you know, maybe, you know, in your own inner work, just exploring more about, you know, your fears around that. And, you know, Chase, it's like, it's so interesting because you said getting drunk on, on, uh, the idea of being a father. So like, you know, for me, it would just be to remind you to just spend a few minutes each day getting drunk, but mm -hmm. not, not, not drunk, you know, not like alcohol drunk, but just feeling drunk, you know, yeah. going outside and for five minutes, just losing yourself, doing some ecstatic dance or whatever calls you, you know, being drunk, you yeah. know, and like just really bringing that in now. So you don't have to wait you know, you don't have to just fantasize that. It's like a calling you to say, 
how you know what would it be like to to be in that state now i love that so just kind yeah. of a little dreaming connection yeah that's mm-hmm. beautiful and and on that topic i'd love to i'd love to shift into dreaming a little bit you know we mentioned we met jason at a dream interpretation workshop and something you said there that that has sparked a ton of really fun conversations for us over the last you know month or so and uh, really what we want to get into uh today a little bit is you said the fact that we are all dreaming all the time. Yeah. What do you mean by that exactly? And how does that look in everyday life? Totally, totally. So, okay. So when we use our awareness, okay, we can notice and follow the constant flow of experiences happening within us and around us all the time, okay? And so within this flow of experiences, within our awareness, we can just discover rich information about our lives. And so this is a continual dreaming process that's happening all the time. This is not something that just happens when we go to sleep, the nighttime dream. We can step into this dreaming process and discover a great deal of wisdom at all times, right? So we can notice spontaneous movements that our body does. We can notice how we're standing, you know, like right now I'm standing here with my arms like this and like, I can really feel into that pose and really, you know, it happened kind of spontaneously, but then I, you know, I could really discover why am I, why are my hands like this in this particular time? If I have a song that pops into my head that I can't get out of my head and I'm singing it and I'm singing it. Oh, oh, you know, I got, I have this crazy song in my head. I can't get rid of it. Like how annoying, but what if that song, is there to awaken us to a type of energy or a meaning or a feeling, right? So we have these flirts where, you know, it might not just be with a beautiful person that walks by, but a color of a flower might catch us or an animal that goes by. You know, this morning I was, I, I was, I was reflecting on, on a dream I had last night and it was quite interesting actually. I was dreaming of a college girlfriend and I was at a train station and I was giving away money to people and she was getting really mad at me. And then I wound up and, and went to this like Native American store where all these different things happened. And I was just like completely detached from her story of what was going on, right? So at that moment when I'm reflecting on that and like, what does that mean today for this, this uh, maybe for my clients today or for this podcast, I saw all these turkey vultures fly right by my car. And I'm, and I'm realizing in the moment that those turkey vultures are sort of a confirmation of that dream and that there, there's something maybe to let go of, right? Maybe let go of this idea of this, this old girlfriend that I would maybe associate with like, you know, mainstream conventional ways of living and step into more of my sort of native, maybe my, you know, earth-based self, right? And really bring that out today. Um, so my point in that is that I could just say, oh, that's just, uh, you know, there's just a dead animal on the side of the road and there's a bunch of turkey vultures there devouring it. Or I could look at that synchronicity or that flirt that it caught my attention while I'm driving as a confirmation to my dreaming process of what is that trying to say to me, knowing that I'm, I'm in this larger dreaming field that's, you know, that's dreaming us all up all the time. So this dreaming process is an endless source of creativity. Mm. So if, if you catch it, if you can catch it, it's like the tail of a new idea and an inspiration. 
Mm. Yeah. And, and, and this is something that is a birthright for everyone. You know, so many people have this mild chronic depression. You know, Arnie Mandel, my process work um, teacher says, most people are walking around with a mild chronic depression. They're like, they're, they may not be clinically depressed. They may not even be on antidepressants or something like that, but they're just like, they feel that flatness like that I felt when I was just in the gym, like grinding it out or just, just only in the trading world, like just focusing on money, right? But he says that one of the number one causes of that is marginalizing our dreaming. Mm. forgetting that we live in this like mysterious magical dreaming <laughs> world that's yeah. full of symbolism and meaning and metaphors and just like rich stories of multi-dimensionality versus this this like the world is not purposeful and i just go to my job and i'm like a robot and everything's very mechanical right so one of the quickest ways to step into this dreaming process is to catch a flirt so a flirt appears as these like quick nonverbal sensations, these little flickers or these little moods we get in or these hunches, something that suddenly a catch, catches your attention like that turkey vulture, mm -hmm. right? And there, there, there's, there, there are many exercises we can do, but you know, I don't know if you wanna get into that or not, but just this idea that anytime that something flirts with you, just take a moment to like think about what is that that I'm looking at? Why is it catching my attention? How is it making me feel? How is it moving me? What if I became that for a second, right? What if I became that turkey vulture? You know, what do I want? What do I need to devour in my life, right? What do I need to recycle or something like that and move like that bird? You know, so just stepping into the dreaming process is an endless source of, of creativity. Hey friends, if you're looking for the most pure, high quality mushroom powder and capsule extracts, look no further than our friends at Real Mushrooms. It's seriously overwhelming how many low quality mushroom products are out there that are bulked up with fillers and grains. Real Mushrooms is a family owned business with over 40 years of growing experience. Their organic mushroom extract formulas have been perfected over many years and contain zero grain fillers, just real mushrooms. Every batch is rigorously tested by a third party to ensure maximum potency and effectiveness. You could grab some cordyceps powder to help support sustained energy for your workouts or your busy day, or maybe one of their blends like the hot chocolate mix for a guilt-free indulgence for you and your kids. They also have a line for pets. To grab some real mushroom goods, just go to realmushrooms.com forward slash Mimi and use the code Mimi, M-I-M-I, -M -I, at checkout to receive a nice hefty discount. And you can trust our mushroom loving hearts that we only bring you the best. Cheers. Yeah, I, is there something coming up for me? If, if you don't mind me sharing, it's just a, a, a story of as I was sort of, we were divorced, completely split up. Um, I'm sort of healing from my adrenal exhaustion. And I would uh, swim as a way of like staying active and continuing to have exercise, but like really cooling off in the, in the gym for the most part. And so I would swim, it's an outdoor pool in Coronado, California, just stunning. The ocean's on one side, San Diego Bay is on the left side. And I'd get out of this swimming experience. And I, for whatever reason, just felt compelled to turn, you know, earbuds off, not listening to any music. And I was so 
buzzed from this swimming. You know, it's like literally breath work and swimming for 30 plus minutes. And I found myself like, I'm not, I'm never going to take the same path home. And I walked, I would walk there about a mile and a half walk. And it's, Coronado was loaded with succulents and plants and palm trees. And I would find myself lost in the beauty of the sacred geometry, the sacred patterns of a succulent plant and the Fibonacci sequence and like counting it. And I would find myself getting flirted with, with birds and then wondering what it would be like to be that bird and putting my actual consciousness in the bird's eye view and what it would look like to fly up and see the island sort of like slowly uh, disappearing in my, in my sight. And there, there's no coincidence that that activity, that, that what sounds like this sort of like very conscious dreaming uh, acknowledgement led me to the life that I'm in now, which is more balanced. I, be I became to, uh, to find what actually lit me up. I was getting familiar with those, those nudges from the universe or God or however you want to articulate that through the plants, through the birds, through the animals, such that those nudges of creativity, when I applied them in my life, like, should I be changing my occupation? Should I be getting back with my ex-wife? Should I be, uh, you know, pursuing these different avenues of kind of the rational world? I had become familiar with what it felt like to be nudged and to acknowledge that nudge and to lean into it to, and, and really see the fruits of that in my own life. And it was like such a habit building uh, familiarizing of these sort of like universal nudges, if you will, that it, it does actually play into to more rational 3D world experiences. Yeah, I mean, you're spot on. I mean, you, you nailed it. Um, you know, you got lost so you could be found. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do we how do we spend a few minutes each day getting lost? Right? We wake up every day and we have right from the get go our alarms going off. You know, we're already checking our phone. We have these to-do lists of all these things we need to accomplish. How do we just spend a few minutes just going out in nature and just getting lost in the woods, you know, staring at the stars and, you know, wondering at just all this beauty of the, these, these far away suns that are just shining down on us from God knows how far away, yeah. right? You know, or just, just getting lost in, in like a child. But we, we, we get so kind of focused on our life and our primary process, like we talked about earlier, of doing all these various things that we forget to get lost, but just altering your space, altering your mind for five minutes, for 10 minutes, can offer a completely new perspective of, of and a new ways of looking at things. You know, Alan Watts would say something like, you know, in order to say, in order to be sane, get a little crazy. Every <laughs> yeah. Day. You know? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And so, you know, in process work, we have a meditation type exercise called space time dreaming, which is exactly what you did, which is essentially clearing your mind and sort of just floating up into space, letting space move through you where you're being you're being moved and you're being breathed by space and not actually doing anything. And from there, looking down at the earth from this sort of meta position and thinking about your problem or thinking about what mm -hmm. your, your big question in life and having some sort of insight from that state. So these altered states, these other ways of, of non-consensus ways of looking at things like getting lost in the leaf or looking up at the birds, they are so important for our creativity because when we're locked in to our you know, primary mind, 
there's nothing new that we're accessing. We're just really regurgitating things that we've heard before, right? There's nothing new coming in. But when we can alter our mind and we can get sort of this like beginner's mind or this childlike mind and open, open up to new possibilities and look at things from different perspectives, we can get so much more information, which mm -hmm. we can then integrate back into our life, which, you know, actually makes us more optimized, healthier, happier, more purposeful people. You know, this is not about just like checking out. It's like you can go there to solve a problem that you have with your business, right? It's about taking a step back and altering your mind and seeing things from a different perspective momentarily. It doesn't actually even take a lot. You know, you could just spin around your room a few times or do a minute of dancing or something and then just then access that space. So, you know, it's just a beautiful example that you gave of how that, that, that dreaming nature and how altering your mind to step into that is a doorway into so much more than we normally think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I'm curious, you know, we, we talk about, uh, relationships obviously a lot on this podcast and, um, you know, we're curious about your, your approach to relationship through the lens of some of these different pro uh, process work concepts and dreaming sure. concepts. How do these different concepts um, affect our relationships? And more specifically, how can they uh, add to and benefit our current intimate relationships? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and thank you for opening up that door. So I'll just kind of take them at one at a time and we'll see, we'll see yeah. where, where they go. So, you know, one thing that I just is popping out at me is this idea that the processes that we have often in our bedroom with our partners um, mirror our life process. So, for example, I have a client who came to me, his, you know, why are you here? Well, I'm here for, because I, you know, I have erectile dysfunction. I can't get erect, right? But the deeper I go into his life and get to know him and talk to him from week to week, I understand that he has no boundaries in his relationships. He lets people walk all over him. He has bosses that tell him to work more. When I started getting into it, I realized that th what this person really had was they had, they had boundary issues, right? And so their erectile dysfunction or their inability to get erect was actually mirroring that they needed to stand for themselves in their relationships mm -hmm. with their boss, you know, with the various people in their life. And at the same time, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that what he was against, what was disturbing was that, you know, the penis was actually going inside. And so like for me to encourage him to actually become a penis, like stand, stand in session and be erect and feel what that feels like, and then actually be like the soft flaccid penis that goes down inside and, and look into that and to help him to be erect in his life and also to not be thinking so much with his mind and to go inside and access information. And the same thing can be for somebody who, you know, ejaculates too quickly, right? So it's like, you know, I could be really against that process, but this is just a process of somebody that is like really fiery and speedy and like can get things done and their minds like bam, 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 right? So, how do I cultivate more slowness or more non-doing or more just being and allowing and surrendering in my life? And then also in the bedroom 
but how also do I look, look at that part of me, that fiery, speedy part as a good thing as well, right? And really come, come to terms with all these things. So I just think it's kind of interesting that we're dreaming in our life and our processes are dreaming us up to our wholeness. And those same things are showing up not only in body symptoms and flirts and flickers, but also in the way that we, we are with our partners in, uh, in the bed. Yeah. And so a couple other things about that is um, the way we meet our partner, like the first big experience we have with our partners, which I'd love to explore a little bit with you two, but yeah. I'll just say a little bit about this is like the first big experience that we remember, like how we met our partner, what were the roles that were taking place? What was the big dream-like experience or any big dreams we had about that relationship? Even if we think about in our life, what's our first memory about any kind of relationship, not even an intimate one, like thinking back to the first memory we have as a child of being in relationship with anybody else, right? All of these things are sort of like dreaming us up. So just for an example, in my own life, when I met my, my current wife, Kara, we went I, I, on our first date, I took her to this place in Northern California where we went to this like wolf sanctuary. Mm. And th these, these, um, these really interesting people had these like wild, but socialized, like kind of domesticated, but wild wolves, like mm. living in their house and in cages and wow. like sitting on, sitting on the couch, like dogs. And we were like kind of interacting with them. And then like the wolves would go out and actually, and really act as a pact and go out and hunt and then would come back and were like socialized with this family. So they were not like in a zoo, wow. but they were also not fully wild. And so when I think about that as our life myth, I'm remembering like first the importance of the pact. Like that's a really big thing for, especially for my partner, Kara. It's like doing things as a family and everybody kind of mm -hmm. pitching in and supporting the entire pact. It's not about any individual one, but then it's like, how do we stay socialized but also wild yeah right yeah. how do we keep that same energy where we're like primal and wild and fun and also like somewhat domesticated and you know have like a functioning house and family and so you know anytime we get away from this dream you know like it may just take me like howling at the moon at her or just remembering that we need a little bit of, of more wild time or a little bit of time out of nature or just being a little bit more primal to get us back on track. Or if I realize that, you know, I'm spending so much time working or on Zooms or doing podcasts and I'm kind of forgetting about the family and then I notice that there's like stress. It's like, okay, our dream is we're a pact mm -hmm. and, you know, not any one of us can excel without all of us coming together for the pack to work. And so remembering these things are really important. And I'll just say one more thing is that also the roles in which we play in relationships in when we meet are really important. Like when I met Kara, she was in the role of being a chef. She, there's this really interesting story that would, would, would take quite a while, but how we met, but she was in the role, we were at a, we were at a family vacation and she was very synchronistically hired as a chef. And so, when we moved in together with, you know, with my two kids before we had our third, my, my third, our first together, my son, Kidra, um, she was very much in this like service role until she woke up one day and realized like, I don't want to be like just 
the cook. Like I'm not even getting paid for this anymore. <laughs> and we realized that unconsciously because of how we met where she was in that role, there was kind of this like assumption that she should stay in this role. So identifying the roles and, and how we meet people and, and, and also the roles of, in our relationships are so important. Like so many times people will say, well, I'm the one who always initiates sex and you're the one that never initiates. I'm the disciplinarian, you're the fun parent. I'm the money parent, you know, you're the this parent. And we have these like, these really rigid ideas about who we are. And so to be fluid with them, right? Mm -hmm. To recognize, like, it's, I think it's important to have department heads. You know, there is something to be said about that, that, okay, you know, there's a, maybe, maybe with money, I have more experience because of my financial background. And maybe in the kitchen, Kara has more experience because of her, her cooking background. So we should try to figure out things together with the cooking and with the kitchen and how, how we eat. And we should try to think, figure out things together with money. But when it comes down to it, maybe I'm the department head here and she's a department head there. And there's, there's somebody that maybe can make the decision. But in the reality, we need to be fluid in all these roles. So if she always initiates sex, then I, I should initiate sex, you know, and she should take a step back. If she's the one who's the disciplinarian with the children and I'm the, like the fun parent, well, I need to, you know, it's, I need to step up and act as if I'm that. And then, you know, she can just lay back and play. And so the cool thing about this is when we step into these roles, you can become like an actor in your own life. Like mm. you can take on personas and dream figures. And if you don't think you can do it, Think of somebody that you know can do it, right? Think of like somebody in your life that you think would be a good disciplinarian or somebody that would act a little bit more Venus-like or a little sexy or something, and then play as if you're them, right? So it just opens up to a lot of fun and freedom, thinking about our dreams and relationships, thinking about how we first met and how that plays in our life um, and also the roles. And so I'd love to explore that a little bit with, with you two about yeah. what, what was it like when you first met and your, the first half of your relationship and what was it like when you met again and, and how does that kind of correlate to your relationship now and maybe any roles um, that were working or weren't working or things like that as well? Yeah, for sure. You know, we're childhood friends first and foremost. Yeah. Like, Yeah, before we even started dating, we were actually kind of dating or had crushes on each other's best friends. So we were hanging out as friends before yeah. we were even which at we like, never shared at that. like 15 years old, yeah. uh, like, you know, we're, we're fresh out of middle school, you know, really, really young. And the things that come up for me are just, there's this friendship element. There's a lot of play. I mean, mm -hmm. we're water skiing, we're Pacific Northwest kids going through the, you know, the woods and the mountains and just having a ton of fun. Um, but there was also like wild compatibility. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was like friendship also just a ton of compliments in the way that we just like looked at life and operated in life even even in our dating relationship as teenagers we were super like functional mm -hmm. it turned into codependence but it was like wildly functional and then there was spark then there was like sexual spark so it was this really nice um woven friendship with sexual spark and also very like productive and compatible together in our young relationship I would add to that uh, overwhelming sense of both curiosity and safety. 
yeah. um, as we're teenagers figuring out our own and each other's bodies together there I, there was never one moment where I felt pressured or he felt pressured. It was all based around curiosity and feeling 100% safe with each other. Um, that was an overwhelming feeling for me. A couple of Christian kids, you know, figuring each other's <laughs> bodies out, like breaking all the rules, you know. Uh, skip another, an, another thing we should be taught much earlier, right? Yeah. Instead right. of these like ridiculous health classes, oh you know, I, I don't want to derail, I don't want to derail the, 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 the subject, but it's just, it's amazing what, what gets taught in school and what's getting taught now in school. We have a real crisis of yeah. not lear learning about sexuality mm -hmm. and lear learning about the human body, but keep going with your story. But yeah. yeah, we were just very blessed in the way that we learned about sexuality together. We didn't have a class. Our, our Christian school didn't have a class. They wouldn't even utter the word sex. So we were figuring out uh, together what that meant. And, but in this very safe container that only, it was just fun and bliss and play and curiosity. Yeah, and deep. You know, we're we're laying under the starry night sky at 16 and 17 years old, yeah. watching 13 shooting stars and promising that we'll be together forever. I mean, it's like 90s Dawson's <laughs> Creek level script. Yeah. Um, and, and that that takes us into our marriage, which uh, we get married very early, uh, right after college, as encouraged by the by the kind of community that we came out of. And man, those hats really really. Mm -hmm. took the, the sexual spark kind of we took that hat off and although we were still friends and although we were still really compatible it was a codependent almost like really functional roommate yeah. really functional business partner situation and lost um some of that safety energetically mm -hmm. to authentically show up as the person that we were sort of changing and trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a uh, very little sexual spark. Part of it was amplified by the fact that I was physically not present. I was gone every single week of mm -hmm. the first three years of our marriage. Um, and we definitely lost uh, the essence of play. Yeah. Yeah. Play, yeah. Uh, was uh, yeah. unless unless we were prompted by a holiday or a vacation. Yeah. So we oftentimes really looked forward to like counting down the days until we can go to Hawaii, because although it's a beautiful place and it's vacation, no work, that was also like injected some spark back into our relationship, which was so nourishing and, and fulfilling for, for, mm -hmm. I think both of us. Yeah. So yeah, holidays and, and vacations were relied upon heavily and we didn't really flex the muscle of, okay, how do we bring vacation energy into our daily life? Totally. Yeah. I mean, just, just to pause there for a second, that was so amazing. But the things that caught me, like you, you kept repeating this playfulness, this figuring things out together and this kind of wonder of looking up at the stars. Right. And life turns into like, for many of us, you know, you went from figuring things out together to chase being on the road and, you know, focusing on his work and obviously the, the, the loss of some of this playfulness waiting for this, like, moment that never comes where you can finally relax instead of living that every day like the, the same essence that you were lost in where you were looking up at the stars with the birds and your own personal experience you know you naturally cultivated that as as you know teenage lovers you know just being in awe of the whole thing and of course life comes along and you know we lose sight of that dream and so you know in, in that first relationship it would have been to have gone back and recaptured some of that playfulness, recaptured some of that figuring things out together, 
you know, it may have required you not being on the road for your job and taking a different, different job or something like that. But, you know, history was beautiful in the way that it unfolded for you. But, you know, I think it's clear to the audience that in that first, you know, part one of your relationship, you lost the, the myth and the dreams and, the, and what we would call the high dreams, which is the highest hopes and ideals that we have for relationships. And you started to live in what we call the mood, the low dreams, which are the kind of the bad moods and the feelings that happen when we're not actually getting our high dream met. So mm -hmm. yeah, like how to get that feeling of a holiday every day, right? Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that would have been helpful to you at the time to be coached through or to have, you know, somehow stumbled into that awareness yourself, which is very difficult why we kind of go to other, you know, teachers and therapists and things like that. Yeah. But um, I'm curious about what was different about it the second time around, mm -hmm. you know, how did you meet, how did you meet the second time? And what was that dreamlike experience like? And, and how is that working for you now? I, I think, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind was we had gotten to a place where we were friendly again with each other. We had both healed a lot of aspects of our own inner world. And we were both to a point where we could wish well for the other. And we were actually intrigued by each other, like just curious. Again, mm. curiosity comes mm. up where I know him better than probably anyone in the world, but also he was such a different expression of who he is than the, the person that I divorced. So I was so intrigued and curious to know more about you and this expression of you. And then also this theme of safety, because there was no there was no expectations, you know, people don't get back together after they get divorced. So there was no expectation of what is this? What are we doing? What, what is going to happen if we keep talking? It wasn't even in my purview. Right. So I, I had no like fear. It was just, I feel safe in talking to you because I know you better than anyone, but also again, this, this theme of curiosity um, was coming up. And I think then once we were in each other's presence in Anaheim for this natural health expo, we really let down our guard. We're sitting in our, our, my little rental car and we were talking late into the night for like two and a half hours in there, you know, talking about these different difficult experiences that we went through when we were married and really sharing part of our hearts that uh, we hadn't even touched on when we were, when we were going through our divorce. And so there was this also like, um, vulnerability that was really beautiful. That was so organic. This wasn't planned. We were just sitting in the car and kind of spilling our souls to each other and really offering this beautiful, honest, authentic, vulnerable side of each of us. You know, we're sitting there holding hands in a completely non-sexual way. It was just like, my soul wants to comfort your soul. And I see you. And, uh, I, we hadn't felt that in a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of put me back on my heels. Like, what is this? What is this strong feeling that I'm experiencing just from talking to him and bearing our souls to each other? So that, that level of vulnerability definitely came back as well. Yeah. It was really acting on, um, acting on those nudges, acting on those, those authentic feelings in the moment without premeditation, like the way that we actually we're at this health expo in, in Anaheim, California. And after this very deep, intensive, but also playful and, and enjoyable few days, I just grabbed her face and I stared at her in the eyes for probably 60 seconds. And I just kissed her on the mouth and was like, I love you. 
and I, like this wasn't some like premeditated like fuckboy game plan. It was <laughs> it was literally just like whoa. I just completely channeled something not unlike how we're 16 and 17 years old staring at the starry night sky and feeling something enough to say I just want to be with you forever like in yeah. the most pure innocent childlike curious way and I think those same oddly enough those those chords of familiarity between the 16 17 year old versions of ourselves and the 27 28 year old versions as we were getting back together after a divorce are so much more similar than the marriage that we had. The marriage that we had, which was let's write out in a list all of our goals and what we're going to do over the next three years and what we're going to achieve and when we're going to have this house. And and that was such a, a non-felt exercise of being together versus this sort of surrender to the overwhelming nudge of connection or in part two reconnection totally and you know there's just a few things that caught my you know flirted with me when when you're saying that i mean what a beautiful story and i i really was i was getting the chills when you're talking about <laughs> just you know grabbing her and kissing her it's just just awesome but you know you both have talked about this because you know we chatted a little bit yesterday in preparation for this but you both talked about that this second time that you met you actually felt like kind of a channeled yeah energy that there was something that was moving through both of you right mm -hmm. and so that that seems to be um a really important piece that it's not actually the two of you but it's like something that's flowing through you both that you're creating together there's almost like a third that's being you know and that's really the, that's really real tantra is this like third that is created between the tantra of the masculine and the feminine that you know it's like this energy that's moving us both together and so, yeah, you talk about and, you know, you know, things that have come up a few times is this idea of no expectations. Right. So now you're in this relationship where you're just letting life flow through you. Mm -hmm. You're just not holding back. You know, you don't have any sort of strings attached. There's no things that have to happen. And you're in this like kind of very, again, now friendly, curious, childlike state. And, you know, re always remember that that is your myth. And so if you ever, you know, if times ever get tough, those are the things to fall back on. Mm. Remember, remember that it wasn't you that picked each other, that it was just like, you know, divine intervention and mm. use that as your power. And then, you know, get into those states to allow that to flow through you, to get you out of those low dreams and those low moods. And I think it's really interesting. I'm just kind of playing with this in my own head right now, but this idea of the natural health expo, right? Expo is kind of like an exhibition or it's like a thing where things are just open and displayed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just playing with this idea of obviously the importance of health in your life now that you're doing a natural health podcast and you met at a natural health expo, but this idea of just being completely open and open source with each other mm -hmm. and that, that, that is the way to natural health mm. in your relationship. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. so good. Hey homie, did you hear that Organifi the creators of the best and most delicious green juice in the world now has a crisp apple version. You guys, it is so dang good. I love the original green juice, but this may be my new favorite Organifi product. The apple taste isn't too strong. It's just the right amount. 
So Green Juice Crisp Apple has all the same benefits of the original green juice with a new crisp twist and refreshing taste and only two grams of sugar using organic whole apple sources handpicked from our home state of Washington. Holler! I drink green juice on a daily basis because the clinical dose of ashwagandha really helps support my body's stress response and cortisol levels. And you know what they say, you're either making stress hormones or sex hormones, not both. So green juice really is sexy. To grab your new sexy green juice, crisp apple, go to Organifi.com and remember to use the code MIMIFIT, M-I-M-I-F-I-T at checkout for a hefty 20% off on all your Organifi orders. Cheers and love, boo. Uh, and I could just share a quick story about, you know, that this idea of using the, your, your dreams to, to fall back on in tough times. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I went through, I went through a really difficult divorce and I was not looking for a relationship and I met synch- synchronistically again. I met Kara two years after I had first met her and, you know, I had this moment where I was with my brother out in California and, you know, all, you know, all, all the kids were, were away with other family members and, I had this moment where I just met Kara the day before and I decided to do a a medicine journey with my brother. You know, I had just gotten out of this divorce. I hadn't, hadn't really had any kind of experiences like that in in probably two years. And I just really felt like I needed some bonding time with my brother to lay down in his garden and, and take some medicine and to heal. So we're out there in the garden and this is the day I, I, after I met Kara and all of a sudden I'm having this vision that's coming on of seeing the arc of our whole relationship from meeting to like death do us part type stuff. And I saw that like the arc of it was positive, that it was a a venture worth taking, but that there was going to be lots of high dreams and lots of low dreams. And there's going to be lots of wiggles and waggles along the way. And it wasn't just this like easy straight line. And in that moment, I, I, I thought to myself, oh man, I was like kind of giggling like, am I going to do this again? Like, am I brave enough to jump back in to the lion's den and like open up my heart and be fully vulnerable and go through all of that pain and all of those highs, you know, just to, for this. And I said, all right, I can do it. I can do it another time. And then I, I consciously said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to step into this relationship despite the fact that I know that it's not going to be all easy. Right. I have two kids. I just got divorced. You know, I just met this person. I just met her in California and all of a sudden I'm seeing us spending our life together. And in that same moment, my brother from across the garden yells over to me, she said, yes. (laughs) And so I was like, it just freaking blew my mind because it's like, I don't know, this whole idea of, you know, non-locality and the shared experience was, was, was pretty rad. But in addition, it's, it was just such a confirmation for me that, okay, this is the right relationship. So Mm -hmm. We, we went up going on a date a week later to the Wolf Pack. She flies home with me to New York and we move in together and we've been together for like four years now. We have wow. a two-year-old, two-year-old mm-hmm. son. And the, my point in telling the story is that that's my personal myth of my relationship. That's my big dream. And so anytime that times get tough, I can use that as my anchor. It's mm-hmm. like that's, that's my tool of sobriety. When I get too drunk in the bad moods of a relationship that are inevitable, 
that dream helps me stay sober. Mm-hmm. And it also helps me stay sober in the high dreams, knowing that low dreams come from high dreams, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, that keeps me on that narrow path where knowing that, okay, yeah, things are tough, but you know how this ends. You saw it all yeah. and you and you chose it. Mm-hmm. So just just hang in there, right? And so, yeah. you know, to you to use your your kind of the spontane spontaneity and the beauty in which you you met and which others meet their partners as this anchor of sobriety uh, throughout their relationship to be this sort of pilot wave that drives through their life and through their relationship and carries them through, you know, all times. Oh, it's so good. We've never talked about anything close to that or with any guest. We've never had a conversation like this. And it seems now when you, when you speak about it, it's like, yeah, duh, every relationship should have this anchor point and be able to come back to it when they are going through those low dreams, as you call it, or those bad moods. And um, curious, you know, do you have any insight into how, you know, if I'm going through a bad mood or if Chase is going through a bad mood or both of us and one of us recognizes, okay, we're in this low dream right now. How do we bring, how do we get back to that anchor point? How could one, how could I invite Chase back into our high dream if we are currently both in the low dream? Do you have any pointers or tips or maybe experiences where, where you or Kara have invited each other back to your high dream? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we, we talk about this, this idea of the, of the gap. Okay. Here's my high dream. Here's my low dream. And here's where I am. Here's your high dream. Here's your low dream. Here's where you are. What's the gap, right? Hey, my highest hopes and dreams for this relationship are here. You know, I want to have sex three times a week and we're currently having it once a month. And, you know, the other partner is like, well, I don't, I, you know, yeah, we're having it once a month, but I want to have it once a year, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) so like, I'm just using kind of an extreme example, but it's like, we have these gaps. And so what's really important is to really express what are, you know, vocalize, like, what are your highest dreams? Get to know your partner. Like, what do you want out of this relationship? What are you fearing? What are your limits? What are your boundaries? You know, what are your highest hopes and dreams? Understanding that these often come from, you know, mythical parts of ourselves. They come from deep spiritual needs. They come from childhood needs that are not met or adult needs that are possibly not met. Like finally, someone's going to love me in this way, or finally, someone's not going to abuse me or someone's not like my family member, right? And so, you know, in these tough situations, you can, you really have two choices. One is, you know, well, three, you can stay in a shitty relationship. You can leave the relationship or you can work on narrowing the gap. So in sustainable, in sustainable relationships, we need to address the gap, Mm. right? This is not meeting my high dream. Let's do the work. Where can we meet? How can we close the gap and really consecrating that, right? Making it vocal and looking at it. My needs are not getting met. I'm here, you're here. You know, same goes for you, I'm sure, and other things. What do we need to do to close this gap? Are you willing to do that? You know, am I, can I, you know, are you willing to make these changes so we can meet in the middle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, critical, and that communication that is so critical in before there's um, resistance, before there's charge in a 
place and time that the relationship is is not feeling synchronized to have these conversations in a sober state of mind as we have been the last couple of days uh, in preparation for this here's my high dream here's probably my low dream and more maybe even more importantly what we were talking about was what will we feel like when we're in our high dream what will the signs and signals be in our body and our emotion and things that are happening in our life so that we can be familiar with them ourselves and for each other same with low dream you know mm -hmm. it's like when i'm in my low dream i'm probably going to be externalizing everything and i'll be doubling down on my efforts and my stress and the push of getting something accomplished and that'll be feedback that i'm in the low dream of our relationship. And so I think having that conversation in a sober state of mind so that there is this sort of like accountability to your partner and to the to the commitments that you've made for your high dream to get to the point of like, hey, we've outlined these signals, you're showing the signs of being in low dream. And so yeah. like, even just the practice of us going through that yesterday, to a certain degree, I think is, is so mm -hmm. important in this work. Yeah, it's reminding me of a, a quote by Young Pueblo, which I, I don't know the quote verbatim, but he's sharing this concept of a mature relationship looks like when one partner is going through a hard time, you verbalize that to your partner. So, so one, they're not completely caught off guard if you act or a little bit out of balance, but also so that they can show up for you and support you if you need it. And uh, it seems like step one of, of all of this is what I'm, when I'm putting myself in this situation, if I'm ex currently experiencing some low dream that maybe is just individual, right? Like Chase isn't necessarily a part of it, but something happened and I'm in my low dream just voicing that to him, like, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm going through a little bit of a low dream right now. And I would love your support in this way, X, Y, Z, you know, can you help me with this? Or can you do that? I think that's, uh, I think the first step that sometimes it could be missed is even just letting your partner in on, on where you're at currently and, and letting them show up for you, um, and support you in that way. There, there's a lot there. Um, that was really beautiful and a great quote. And so, you know, I think I think some other things to add to that about what's what might be important is that oftentimes these moods are not even ours. Like when you're a hunter warrior, you are aware of what your normal everyday screen looks like. You know, so if I'm sitting with a client and I'm normally like a pretty balanced person and I can I don't really have an anger problem all of a sudden my client comes on the screen you know we're working on zoom and all of a sudden I'm feeling like I want to really scream at this guy I'm just pissed off at him or her and I just want to scream at them but then I then I if I'm not hunting myself I may scream at them and what's really happening is their childhood trauma let's say in this theoretical example may have been having an abusive father or a controlling father or mother figure that always told them what to do and screamed at them. So their secondary process of step, standing in and getting over this edge is literally dreaming me up mm. to, to be that abusive father in the wow. therapy yeah. so that they have, they have the opportunity to confront it and heal it. Mm. But if I, if I do that unconsciously, I'm just going to be re-triggering them. So, you know, in that moment, it's this awareness of, well, 
I'm not normally like this. I'm feeling this. So you might say to the client, well, dear client, um, I don't feel this way, but I'm f feeling this energy in the room that's a little bit uh, aggressive. And so maybe we'll play out this role and see, see what happens, right? But in relationships, it's realizing that our partners are always dreaming us up, you know, because we're all like playing out these projections of what we're lacking inside of us or the things that happened to us or that, you know, our programming from our parents. So recognizing that it's very easy to get dreamt up, right? Based uh, on your condi conditioning. I love and, and, that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then one more important piece is that we're all under the influences of the planets. Okay. In, you know, we call this astrology, but you know, in, in the Vedas, it's called a, a Jyotish. Somebody will spend their whole life studying, you know, Vedic astrology. So, you know, I'm not by no means an expert, but we have like our physical body, we have the, you know, emotional or the moon and we have, have our sun and we all have, you know, different components of these planets. So these planets are literally, they call them graha, which means to grab. They're literally grabbing us mm. at times and we're under the influence of them. And they're really like delivering little chunks of cause and effect or karma to us at particular times in our life. So understanding this broader view of what your astrological makeup is, what your partner's astrological makeup is, how you fit together as a pair, right? Which is what this whole arranged marriage thing was. We didn't look at, you know, they didn't look at arranged marriage as like this barbaric thing like we do. They look at it like what two types of people would scientifically be compatible together. And it turns out they have much better marriage and divorce rates than we do based on just like, you know, following our instincts, which are just flooded with, you know, love hormones. And, you know, we really yeah. miss all of the signals that, that are there in early part of relationship. And, you know, just, just to tie this all in, this is also really important for parenting because we all, you, know, you talked about parenting earlier, but we so often want to just say, you know, this child is going to, you're going to do this just because I did it, you know, I, I did, I did judo. So you're going to do judo. Well, at that, I want to do, you know, horseback riding. Well, no, you're going to do judo. Right. But if you understand the, the, the Jyotish or the astrology, the makeup, the particular um, mixture of the five elements that your child is, you'll understand what they're more inclined to do. So, you know, we call these the caste system in India, but it was originally called Varnas. And so you have this idea of that it's, in a, it's like one human being, one large being. The head is like the professor, the teacher, the wisdom teacher. The arms are the Kshatriya, the warrior, the FBI, the police, the firefighters, right? The stomach is the producer, the, the banker, the farmer. And the legs are the providers of service, anyone who provides a certain any kind of the, the service industry. And not one of them is, is any better or worse than the rest. You know, they have this whole idea of these untouchable castes, which is the service providers, which means like 80% of the world, 80% of the population is untouchable to them. What a crock of bullshit, you know what <laughs> I mean? So the, the reality is that we're all a cell in this larger human body, and we're all we all have certain inclinations when we come into this world to be inclined to be better at one of these things than, than the next. And that's an important role. And as a society, we need to have functions and purposeful jobs for these people in these different roles and support what people are naturally inclined to do and also combined with what they love to do. 
So looking at your child in this way, well, what's their makeup is the same thing you should do as your partner. Mm -hmm. And then when your partner gets into a mood, you can say, oh, maybe they're being dreamt up. Maybe the influences of like the pandemic is moving through them. Maybe this is something that's happening that actually is unique to them. Or maybe it's the planets that are moving through them at this particular time when the planets are putting their chart under a lot of stress. And so if you take the, the that we're not just this like closed system, we're yeah. a completely open fluid system interacting with our environment, the whole world is moving through us, our partners are moving through us, all of these ghost roles and all of our belief systems are moving through us, all of our personal history. And to really take a step back or to as Chase did, you know, take that bird's eye view and to really realize like, hey, this might not be like Mimi in a bad mood, you know? This might be much more complicated than that. And let me try to take a step back and see the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to to speak to that uh, specific example of the astrological in- influence, we felt it like uh, about a week and a half ago. We were both just feeling very heavy and not motivated. Like usually we are you know, like we mentioned, we have to be convinced into resting. And we were both feeling like not motivated to work. We were both just kind of melancholy and low. And we were like, what is going on? It was for a period of like, you know, four or five, six days. And I I asked one of my um, astrologer friends, I was like, is there something going on with, you know, the cycle, right? Like the cycles of the planets right now. And she was like, oh, big time. She was saying that like Mercury is in retrograde and another one, and then just eclipse season. She was like, it's huge transitions and it always is very draining on energy. And I was like, oh God, because that we were like, what we were like asking each other, like, what is wrong? Did we eat something? Did we, what is going on? So just to your point of if someone's listening and they're like, oh, I don't know about that. I can speak to it directly. Both of us were feeling the exact same thing from these larger planetary influences, just very recent. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we call it the zodiac, but it's really, you know, my teacher Jeffrey Armstrong talks about it as a zodiac, Z O O. Like each one of those signs is an animal, and it's literally there's these we're riding these animals around us, and sort of just like these animal instincts, it's sort of below our consciousness, yeah. right? So the, the awareness of the hunter warrior or the yogi or can, is one that gets off the wheel of riding that animal that's just like driving us through these inst- instinctual situations, like getting into the fight and butting heads and can step back and look at that from a different perspective and not let that con- completely control them or at least have the awareness of what's happening to them in that mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Yeah, this is just so rich and, and um want to leave a little space if there's if there's anything else that that we either didn't address that's that's important from this idea of you know dreaming or high dreams or low dreams um that we should mention uh or or share with the listeners Uh, is there anything else that we potentially are are missing no i think we we covered a lot it would be we don't want to pile on right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys, take take this idea um, and and play with it in your life, play with it in your relationship. Yeah. Like we've been thoroughly enjoying these conversations uh, over the last month or so, and and heightened even more so in the last mm-hmm. few days as we approached uh, this conversation. Um, Jason, we would love to keep having you back on. Like, yeah. there is so much. Be my pleasure here, and we're we're just thirsty mm-hmm. for this, and, and I know everybody is. Um, you know, we 
as we kind of wrap this thing up, we, we have uh, a few different questions. We love to ask every single guest. Um, we're all about like, what are these medicines? Aren't they aren't traditional medicines, but what are these underlying medicines that are available to us that are at our disposal at all times? Uh, we like to ask them uh, of our guests and, and what they consider their medicines in life uh, as it pertains to their body, their mind and their relationships. So first off, what currently in your life in this moment feels like medicine for your body? Yeah, so I'll try to do this in, in not too long since we're not too long of a time since I know we're wrapping up. But in short, it's music. Mm -hmm. So over the last few years, I, you know, I, like I said, I was a drummer, I was into drumming my whole life, but I never did anything that was very like melodic. And I had this big edge about, you know, the drummer always wants to be the front man, right? It's just like, you always want the grass is always greener kind of idea. And, you know, I always like, yeah, drumming is cool, but I always wanted to sing and play guitar or something like that. So I, I just decided a couple of years ago after I had a big experience, which I'll get into to take up singing and singing has just totally inspired me. Um, I was, I had a, a, a trip down to Solterra, the ayahuasca retreat center with my wife, Kara in February of 2020, like right at the beginning of this COVID time. And she had just, we just found out that she was pregnant a few months before. And we had already booked the trip obviously before that. And so we call, we're calling down to Solterra and we say to them, look, um, I don't think we should go on this trip. My, you know, Kara's pregnant. Of course, it doesn't make sense to go to an ayahuasca retreat center. And they said, all right, let us talk to the shamans and you know, the maestra and the maestro and, and, and see what they say. And they come back and they say, look, in our culture, the participants in the ceremony don't even take the medicine. The medicine is just for the shamans and the music or the ikaros that are sung that mm -hmm. are down are downloaded from the shamans going into the jungle and dieting the etta on these plants and waiting until they receive the song of the plant directly from the plant itself. Mm. And then that is the medicine that they give into the ceremony. Mm. And what's really happening is the ayahuasca or the, these kind of medicines are opening us up and so that we could more fully receive these, these healing songs. And who's anyone who's ever been in an ayahuasca ceremony with beautiful ikaros from a professional knows how this music just gets inside of you and will just move you and can literally make you vomit or be ecstatic or you know uh, uh, the full continuum of emotions. So I, I went down there with Kara and I had to did a four day ayahuasca ceremony where she was in the Maloka, but not taking the medicine. And I had done a lot of journeys before, but this one was with my son in, mm. in her belly. Mm. And it was one of the most profound, difficult, high and low being torn apart, ecstatic experiences, which, which I won't get completely into, but the music from this female shaman, really moved me. And I decided in that moment that when she came around to sing to me each night, I was just going to give her all of my heart. I was just going to go completely go for it. And I wasn't going to hold back. And after a few of these days, I went to her through a translator and said, you know, I just so appreciate you. I just want to thank you for you got me so high there. And she said to me, well, I want to thank you because without you really going for it, I couldn't have gone there. I could only take you as high as you're willing to go. Wow. Mm. And something about that experience just pushed me into singing. I started studying with an Alexander Technique teacher, uh, 
each week I've been doing music theory and all these things. And I just found this complete love of singing. And I met also, like I talked about before, my Native American teacher, White Eagle Medicine Woman, who opened me up to all of these, the songs of the directions, writing my own songs, learning Native songs. And, you know, wow. they have this concept of sing for your life, right? And I truly feel that, like, sing for your life. Get up and sing and chant and, you know, move that vibration through you. Write songs or just sing your favorite ones. You know, they say, in the beginning was the word, right? We, what we are is this, you know, the word was ohm. They leave that out. But like, we are, we all need homeopathic medicine. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. need this ohm in our life. We need this, this music and this vibration. And I've, I've gotten turned on to these mantras from Jeffrey Armstrong. And these are like, oh God, I mean, they're just, they're just so, so much love. It's like, you know, we get so, we get so tied down to like one flavor of ice cream. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you had like the, like hundreds of flavors and for each different mood you're in, or they call rasa, this dance, right? You can have a different mantra. You know, now I want to sing to the feminine divine. Now I want to sing to the part that removes obstacles. It's actually a science of vibration and frequency that moves through us to harmonize us and to create various outcomes within our body. And so, you know, in, in our English language, they, we say love. Well, we say, I, I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my fish. I love my wife. I love my husband. I love my daughter. I love my grandma. I love my car. I love pizza, right? <laughs> it's like, but there's so, there's just, when you, when you, in, in these mantras, in these sound vibrations, there's all these different flavors of love. There's loves for all of these different moods and singing and dancing and being kind of, in that vibration is just to me been the most incredible medicine. Yeah. Mm. Oh, wow. God. That might have been the most powerful answer we've ever heard. Yeah. On absolutely. That. Um, what about for your mind? What feels like medicine currently? Whew. Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about this this again a little bit of a story and maybe maybe that this will be the last thing but you know just like just like these these moods we get in you know in in, in the Vedas they, they tell all these stories of of Krishna right and it's really Sri Krishna it's a it's a it's it's a a man but it's personified as a masculine and a feminine divine in 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 a human being and there's also Radha, which is his feminine counterpart of, of the masculine feminine divine as well uh, in a, you know, in a human form. And there's all of these different stories. Like there's this, the way that Krishna carries his slippers when he's a baby, he carries his father's slippers on his head and gives them to his father. Or, you know, there's a story of um, Krishna out in the yard and his brother Balaram comes in and says, mom, Krishna's eating dirt. And she comes out and says, you know, Krishna, are you eating dirt? And he goes, no, Balaram's making that up. And she goes, open up your mouth. And she opens up, up his mouth. And of course there's dirt in there, but there's also, she sees the entire cosmos, like mm -hmm. the multiverse, all the infinite possibilities of source, literally an image that brought Arjuna to his knees and just wanted to like throw it all away. Like it was just too much. The greatest warrior of all time, when he had that same experience, took him to his knees and his, his mother looked at it and said, huh, it's time for lunch. 
And what she meant by that is like, I'd much rather be in love with you. I'd much rather be in service to you than get caught by power, right? Mm -hmm. This whole idea of, you know, um, what's that quote about, you know, the, the, the love of power or the power of love kind of thing. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, power is cool, but it's not that it's not as great as love. It's yeah. not as great as service. It's not as interesting. Yeah. It's not as enjoyable, you know? And so, yeah, there's more stories I could tell, but I think, I think that's what's there for my mind right now is opening up to the power of love, mm. you know, be, being in service, you know, being like, um, Krishna's flute, right? There's this whole story. I'll just give one more story. There's this whole story of, of the gopis, right? Which were these, these um, beautiful young women. And when Krishna was from you know, birth to 11 years old, he played with these gopis. And this was a completely non-sexual type of relationship, but it was a complete love affair, right? And so like these stories are just showing like all of these various flavors of love. Like here's a completely non-sexual but the deepest, most pure love that children have for each other out of just pure devotion, right? Kind of like what you were talking about in your, in, in your relationship in its, in its prime form. And so the gopis were always really jealous of Krishna's flute because Krishna would like keep the flute in his pocket and he'd put his lips to it and he would sleep with it. And they would come over to the flute and they would say, you know, bamboo flute, like how did you get to, to be so lucky that you get to sleep with Krishna and kiss Krishna all the time. Like we're all dying to do that, right? You know, we want to be, we want to be close to him. And he said, well, you know, it wasn't always easy. First he came to me, I was a bamboo tree down by the Yamuna river. And he said, you know, ask me if he can cut me down. And they said, all right, well, maybe that's not so bad. Like, no, that hurt pretty bad. Like get, he cut me down and then he cut me again, but I wanted to be with him more. Mm. Oh, is that all you had to do? No. Well, you know, then he put me through the fire to dry me out. And I'm like, oh, that, that sounds pretty bad, but it's like, it's, you know, that was, that was tough. You know, is that all he had to do? Well, yeah, well, not, not all, but that was pretty tough. But then he had to drill holes into me mm. to create the flute. Mm. And that was really painful, but I wanted to be in service to the divine more. Right. Mm. And so that to me is like, cutting down my own priorities, cutting down my own goals, putting myself through the fire, sitting in the fire, willing to hunt and stalk myself and burn away any of the, the things that are blocking me and literally you know, open up through the holes so that spirit can move through me. And I could be this source in my relationships for in, in service to the greater good. Ugh. Oh my God. That's so beautiful, man. That's that is such a incredible. mic drop moment. <laughs> Yeah, And just a, a perfect way to wrap up the episode and kind of just tie it in a nice, beautiful bow. Um, we are so grateful to have this conversation with you, but also just know you as a friend and as a teacher, obviously, and uh, just so, so grateful that you uh, were, were willing to come on here and share your wisdom um, with our audience and with us and, and for trusting us with that. Um, and we hope to have you back. Um, just one of hopefully many episodes to come. I love that it flew by. I mean, it's such an honor to be with you both. I, I so appreciate our new friendship and this opportunity to, to speak to your audience. It's, it's so exciting. Um, I'd, I'd come back anytime and, um, awesome. hopefully we can do it in person. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah that would be wonderful. We'll definitely make that happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, until then, until, until listeners can, can hear more, where can they uh, find you um, or any, any of the work that, that you're doing in the world? Yeah. So just the simplest way right now is jasonpicard.org. Um, that's just my website. It's very simple. Awesome. It's just a, 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 con, a way to contact me and we can take it from there. Perfect. We'll obviously have that link in the show notes if you guys want to um, hit Jason up for more information or check him out. Um, again, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm already excited to have you back whenever that is. Thank you cool. so much for uh, hanging with us, you guys. We appreciate you being here on these longer episodes. There's so much wisdom here. Just take one thing and try to incorporate it into your life. I know for me, what I want to do with Chase, one thing from this conversation is write out our roles where are we finding ourselves what the tendencies that we find ourselves um, in these roles and then look at how can we maybe switch some of these up a few times a week to um to experience more novelty and this fluidity that jason talked about so that's one thing that i'm going to take into that. my life and and uh i'd love to do that exercise with you so thank you so much for being here you guys and listening we will uh talk to you next time go spread some light Okay, bye. If you liked this episode, make sure you hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. This will ensure that every episode drops into your library automatically. Also, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Mimi underscore the medicine. To learn more about our favorite health products, foods, and supplements we discuss on here, along with the discounts, visit themedicine.com forward slash medicine cabinet, or just check the show notes for this episode. Until next time, cheers, boo.